two. Three. Four. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recap season two episode one man of science man of faith michael bloom here we are season two i am running towards this i'm oh my ankle oh Uh, you rolled it you rolled it you rolled it now i can't go around the world on that race like i wanted to Uh, you gotta lift it up you gotta lift it up and we're here to lift you all everybody up because we are officially on second season of lost uh i cannot believe it if I'd had to make a bet, like, would we make it this far and down the hatch? I think I would have been a hard no. Wow. <laughs> well, ye of little man of faith, Yeah, Josh. well, knowing myself, you know, I do have this tendency to get very excited about a project and start the project and then leave the project. <laughs> Are you saying you, do, you don't have a problem with letting go? Yeah, I, I'm pretty good at letting go. Uh, so I definitely didn't think we would make it this far. Uh, and here we are at the start of season season two and i and i feel super confident that we're going to be able to make it all the way through i'm a confidence man in that regard at the very least and mike uh this podcast it is called down the hatch because we are we are feeding you all lost episode recaps one episode at a time one recap at a time one week at a time i'm nom 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 (laughs) but it is also called down the hatch because it's a pun i don't know if you knew that mike uh now our name finally makes makes sense. sense there's so there's a hatch on the island and eventually they go down the hatch and, and they find matches in there in the butt right and, and that's exactly what happens don't talk about that that is uh it's not canonical um it's 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 so great that we're here it's so great that we're at this moment. You know, the computer beeping that is the backbone of the theme song created by the incredible Alex G for Down the Hatch. Uh, that beeping now, it's it's fully on the show for the next several weeks of the podcast. And I'm so thrilled about it, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit it was a little bittersweet to leave season one, yeah, especially I agree. on you know Exodus, which is both of our definitely in our top episodes. My favorite episode of Lost, my one of my favorite episodes of television. It's like I I don't want to come down from this high. That being said, not to set up too much my feelings about Man of Science, Man of Faith, but I feel like the reputation behind season two, which Josh, you and I had talked offline that I think some intel we've been given is going to make us fundamentally look at season two in a significantly different light, which excites me to no end. But I will say, if you're looking at the overall reputation of season two, I would say the quality of the season opener does not necessarily corroborate with that. This is a really 
damn good episode of Lost. It is the most viewed episode of Lost in season history. This thing caught like wildfire by the end of May. And so over the summer, just the fervor built more and more, especially totally. with that, you know, grown worthy cliffhanger of, okay, we don't actually know what's down the hatch. So people were just chomping at the bit to see what would happen. And granted, I know, you know, what people think about the action that's going to ensue over the next 20 something episodes. But from a premiere perspective, I think it is super well done, surprisingly so when you consider the conventional wisdom behind season two at well, large. In in so many ways, I mean, we're 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 opening up the world of science fiction on Lost in a, in a way that hadn't been done previously. I mean, we'd we'd like dipped our toes in it, but now we're you know we're we're pushing a button every one hundred and eight minutes in order to save the world. It's such a heady concept, and it's going to be the gateway towards time travel and the big electromagnetic uh, energy of it all. Um, but there's also, I think, a really underrated component component of this episode is that this is like and next week does it too less successfully i think but this episode is it's like a horror movie um there are i I would i would even say i'm gonna pull a mike bloom here which i guess is to like make you answer an absolute question but i'm pretty sure the scariest episode of lost you took the words right out of my mouth yeah 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 i know you well um i think it's up there uh i don't know i don't know if i could say it but i i i remember watching it for the first time and as you said like this is this was such a viewed episode of 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 lost the 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 biggest um the biggest audience ever for lost came out for for this episode uh because of that cliffhanger and i think the word of mouth that generated and i've told the story about how one of my very closest friends in the world and certainly one of my closest companions uh um, when it comes to watching Lost and talking about Lost from from the, the days when this was on uh, and it was airing and we were in college, I recruited that person to the cause over the summer by showing them the the season one DVDs. And that person got so fired up. And I think that that is a, uh, a, a, a fairly common story for a lot of people would be my bet. Um, and and so I remember, you know, being in my living room, we were living off campus now. So we were no longer in the dorm room. We had a house, uh, Redfield Place, Syracuse, New York. Uh, and we all all gathered together and we watched the show uh and we uh we were had been theorizing in like uh in in AOL instant messenger at the time to really date the thing like we had like over the summer like we had all just been in in constant conversation about like what the hell is going to happen when we come back and it was just like it was so tense watching this episode the first time. Uh, it was so tense, like when, like it was so confusing at first. The first scene yep. was so bewildering. Um, the Walt scene was horrifying. It was like a ghost movie. Uh, and and the final uh, push of of the episode, I guess, like the final push right before the final commercial break. I would right, say. I would say yeah, the the end of like Act Five or Six, basically when Jack goes down. The when hatch. the when the lights blare on and Mama Cass blares on, and suddenly like it has this total different context the mama cast of it all and like you're as scared as jack is um i don't think that i've ever been scared by lost in the way that i was the first time i watched this episode uh so that's all a long way of saying is it is this the scariest episode of lost ever i don't know but i'm hard pressed to imagine an episode that scared me more when i watched it the first time Right. And I should clarify that. I mean, I would say scary. Scary is obviously, you know, uh, a subjective thing, right? We all have certain scare levels. Mine are much lower than others, as I've expressed before. I would say maybe this is probably the episode of Lost that's made most from like a horror based perspective in these elements, like you said, of just really weird freaky deaky stuff that you know really creeps you out and makes you feel like you've entered another world. This felt like a significant 
transition. You know, we, we've had things like Jack's dad appear in White Rabbit, but Jack Christian Shepard did not appear drenched talking backwards. Uh, you know, we've had situations where people have been creepy out in the jungle before with whispers, but we haven't had a situation where, you know, you transition from a cave into what seems like uh, a, a laboratory out of an Isaac Asimov short story, and then music starts playing and lights turn on and there's a mysterious person pointing a gun at you. This had, I think, a significant shift in tone, and maybe it was sort of to parlay with the raft scene, which I would say is a scary scene in that, like, the terror it induces, but it feels in a different type of way of scariness than this episode. But man, is it is it pace-setting. Uh, there's so much that happens in this episode, and Charlie is part of this episode, I guess, so I guess it is pace-setting in some way, shape, <laughs> right. or form. It is a little weird. Uh, you know, this is the first episode without Sawyer or Michael. There's reference of the raft, and there's a, a you know, a, a visual of Walt, obviously, but we have no idea what happened there, which was probably the other big takeaway from the finale. So, I mean, right off the gate, they do this really interesting thing about both tone and structure that hits in some areas, maybe not in some other ones but what a way to start and what a way for millions upon millions of people to get back into lost yeah all right so we're getting back into into lost our first recap of an episode in about two weeks now uh certainly not our first podcast in in two weeks we had the feedback show we also gave you some bonus coverage with the season one book club with the great john kraus happy birthday john kraus uh as of uh the the drop date for this podcast january 31st so if you enjoyed that podcast give him a little bit of a shout on the twitter bots he's at john kraus uh, i thought he did a fantastic job on oh, yeah. that on that show which was really fun to do and uh just to kind of tease the future we, we may or may not have uh, another bonus podcast or two coming your way yeah in, we might, the, we, we might have stumbled upon an armory filled with bonus podcasts <laughs> we'll see gonna, we'll see we'll see those are gonna get depleted soon so don't be like hurley and like throw a big banquet of yeah. bonus podcasts. Yeah, yeah 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 we're gonna run out of supplies soon but uh <laughs> we we may or may not have something incredible coming up uh pretty soon so very excited about that if you want to make sure that you are getting that podcast and every other podcast in the down the hatch universe simple solution to that subscribe subscribe to down the hatch on your podcast app of choice postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch is our apple feed your ratings and reviews so greatly appreciated especially as we are embarking on season two it would be lovely to pick up some new listeners along the way and in case you are one of those new listeners uh it is it is a, a valuable thing to know right now we haven't done this in a while but let's just do it since it's the season two premiere this is a spoiler filled lost rewatch we are talking about loss from the perspective of people who have seen the entire show. So we're talking about the ending. We're talking about everything that happens to all of these characters. All of that is fair game for conversation here on Down the Hatch. So if this is your first time through Lost and you're looking for a companion podcast, go find another one. <laughs> this is good. This is good as a, a companion for your rewatch or just for a nostalgia fix. Uh, this is this is not good for your first run through Lost unless uh, you don't care about spoilers, which is totally fine if that's your deal. Um Mike, I can't believe we're down the hatch. This is this is this is so exciting. And I know that before we got on the air, you and I, uh, first of all, we recorded the book club podcast earlier today, so we already spent ninety minutes on a microphone yeah. together. This feels like the first three episodes, which is just like taking place all over the course of a few hours. But we're going to talk for so much longer time about I know. these events. Uh, but then I also called you uh, a couple hours ago with some really great news that people will learn about uh, at some point in the next. Let's call it in the next like week or so. Uh, with, <laughs> with some really exciting lost down the hatch news. Uh, and now we're 
probably going to be what? What do you think? Like three hours for sure, right? That's, con- I, that's being conservative. Yeah, I think yeah. that's being conservative. We'll be here for three hours at least. Uh, but we were also texting, and uh, you you really did me a solid this uh, this afternoon when you said, "Have you watched uh, the Secrets from the Hatch video, which is like a fifteen minute documentary from the Lost DVDs uh, from the season two extras? It's Damon Lindelof, Carlton Cuse, even J.J. Abrams, Jack Bender, um, people involved with the production. Our, of our, our uh, attempted uh, friend of the podcast, Brian Burke, right, makes right, an Brian appearance Burke, as well, Burke probably on his up. way to Japan at some point. Yes, Javier Grio, Mark's watch is on there as well. Matthew Fox is in there as well. Uh, and it's all of these people involved in Lost um, talking about the hatch, uh, and not just from a design perspective, which is very, very interesting, but also from a thematic perspective and from a story perspective and what it is that the hatch represents. Um, and we'll link... We'll link to this in our show notes. Um, yeah, I, I would say, like, if anyone has 15 minutes, it is eye-opening yes. and fascinating. And to we watch all know so that, that Lost is big on the eye-opening. Especially, uh, yeah. And, and they, they, this, is, this was really a, a beautifully revealing 15-minute um, experience uh, that has opened my eyes, Mike, to a new way of looking at the hatch uh, in, in, a, in a way that I don't think I've ever really thought about the hatch before. Mm. But and, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me. Uh, again, watch the video. Um, but Damon Lindelof talks about in the video about how the hatch really is designed to bring out uh, a different side of you on the oh, I actually have the quote here. Let oh, me, let please. Me read it yeah, great. Mike, do um, it. So Lindelof says, the idea of the hatch is there's this very Jekyll and Hyde-like quality to it that was very blatant on our part, which is you are one person outside the hatch, but when you get inside the hatch, you are another person. It forces other aspects of your personality to manifest just by virtue of what you have to do there. Yeah, yeah. And he also talks in the video about how it's sort of like there's this Faustian deal, like you're kind of yeah. in hell. Like that the hatch uh, for some people rewards your faith. For like for John Locke, it, re- it rewards his faith. Uh, this, is, this is what's here. You now have this new purpose. Here's your destiny unbound. Uh, you know, Lindelof talks about it kind of like the devil has arrived on the island in the form of what's inside the hatch. Uh, and I thought that that was such a fascinating way to look at this. I mean, I do think that you think about, certainly with like the, the wine bottle metaphor, right? You know, you talk about the cork in the wine bottle and that's what the, the island is. The island is keeping evil at bay and the red wine represents evil and that's the metaphor we get in season six but even in the way that Lindelof talks about what the hatch is doing on the island he's describing that metaphor differently uh I won't repeat his words here because I don't think he refers to a a, a Dutch folklore piece I should say yeah let's just say a thumb in the dam uh is is uh is what he is what he says and I'll uh I'll I'll leave it there because I think that he uh I I just think out of context it's not gonna work yeah I would say let's let's not have (laughs) give anyone the chance for it to clip it and like yeah I don't think that's good I don't think that's good uh but Lindelof talks about it sort of in the same in the same metaphorical terms as the cork in the bottle is is what the hatch is uh representing is it's keeping this this malevolence at bay um but because it's so close in such great proximity to malevolence it's going to reveal sides of these people that are that are not great that are unsavory that are bad uh i think season two and i know that you feel this way uh there, there are people who who rank season two as their lowest season uh lost i know the ben behind the curtain thinks season two is the best season of the show and i do think that as a fan uh in the live era of of lost of watching there was there was almost nothing like it um this was this was lots lots of highs and lows of watching season two live i agree with that we'll talk about that in the other section but like the height of the era 
advertising. This was like the height of like the fan interactivity and like the height of guessing things and very vividly. And I'll talk about it more when we get to episode three orientation, um, like the reveal of what the Dharma initiative was in the orientation video. There was just this feeling of like, wow, we busted lost. It's wide yeah. open now. Uh, we got it. We figured it out. And so like everything would like be like tethered back to the Dharma initiative. And now you would come up with all these different sci-fi explanations for everything. Um, but I, I, I've always, I've always had a soft spot for season two for that reason, but I definitely recognize, and I think as we embark upon it, um, there will be episodes that are either like basically close to full on misses, um, or at least a bit meandering at times. Yeah. But I think if we do look at season two and especially the hatch sequences as this is a season where the devil is at play. The devil's work is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is really stalking and haunting these people. Um, I think that's going to be a really, really compelling way to lens the action of season two. That something mm. dark and menacing is brimming underneath the earth. That hell on earth has kind of arrived here in the form of this insane, uh, swan station that we are going to use as our surroundings for the majority of season two. Yeah, what this really changed for me in terms of my perspective is even less so from like, a, I guess, a mythological or just a thematic perspective of, you know, the devils among us. But I, you know, have have been very vocal in the past about how I feel like starting in season two, maybe lost tends to pref plot above character, you know, especially since we spent season one getting to know our main characters so much, both on and off island, that now we're starting to put them in situations and maybe talk more about the weird things that are happening to them rather than how the characters are reacting. But now that we sort of have this perspective, especially this idea that Lindelof put off of when you go into the hatch, it's like a funhouse mirror. And it's ironic enough that there's a series of mirrors that allows you to basically view all around the hatch that you want to. <laughs> yeah. But it allows yeah. you to essentially see um, another more demented side of yourself that might be more dormant than even it was during the island with this whole tabula rasa. You can be whoever you want right. of it all. And that makes me excited because, you know, I think there are certain unsavory elements of characters that we have been lampshading over the course of Down the Hatch that are going to start to come about in season two. But it might be surprising to know that maybe there is more character stuff to chew on than I initially thought. And it's connected back to this idea of when you go down into the hatch, it's not just a magnetic anomaly that's really screwing with people. It's this idea of the isolation and the task and the faith inherent therein that really brings out a different side to someone. It's not bad writing maybe not necessarily completely bad writing it might be due to just seeing a different side of them that even we have not seen in their life so far no i think it's cool that like the hatch is going to test almost everybody that goes into it and most people not all people most people are going to fail but even a lot of the people that are going to pass the test are going to suffer severe consequences for the passage of their test or passing the test is going to come at some some cost um either way like I, i'm thinking about saeed is going to go back down the hatch and he's going to torture somebody again and right. even even if he's right even if he's right that the man he's torturing is another, it's a dark day for Saeed Jarrah. That's one example. Uh, one of the examples that's given in this video, again, we're linking to it in the show notes, so you should check it out, um, is is Jack and, and the moment where he pins Locke to the wall and yeah. lets, lets the clock run out uh, on, uh, on the 108 minutes and is basically saying, like, I'm not going to push the button until you give me the combo to get into to the armory where Saeed is currently torturing <laughs> this poor man. Uh, 
and let's see what happens because I don't believe that anything's going to happen. And Jack is calling Locke's bluff in that moment. But it's a pretty dark moment for both Locke and Jack. And if Jack fully followed through and let's say like Locke fully followed through as well, then the thing would run out. And potentially the world would end because yeah. the electromagnetic anomaly would occur. Um, so it's 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 a it's a dark place that that tests you in in this really intense way. Um, and I think to to go character by character throughout the season, see where those tests are the most compelling. Maybe some of the areas where it wasn't so compelling. What can we workshop? What could have been better? But what does it inform about character moving forward? I think it's going to be really really fun. And of course, season two. Also, the season of the tailies. We're not going to get any tailie action in this episode, um, but uh, that's going to be a big piece of what we're going to be discussing as we are moving forward. Uh, even as as soon as next week, we'll get our first sighting of the tail section. No, What's Josh, there are others. The others, the others, the others. Uh, speaking of tailies, uh, just as a personal update, uh, many of you know this already, but in the first episode of Down the Hatch, uh, I mentioned how Lost got me through uh, the the death of my cat, the great, the late great Leopardo DiCaprio. Here we are, starting season two. I've got some new tailies of my own, uh, uh, and there are bodies attached to those tailies. Some 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 new kitties in the in the Wiggler Fox household the great Lola Vivian Fox and Dougie Jones. Uh, so uh, I've posted lots of cat pictures on the Instagram if you want to see the cats. But life is good over here as we're embarking on season two. I credit Down the Hatch as a weekly source of positivity with much of the positivity that I am experiencing in my life, including these two two new little tailies. Ah, well, we're happy to be making our own kind of music, and I'm happy that that music was able to hit you on a, on a very uh, on a very joyous note. And I'm I've been so happy to see you happy, Josh, with the new little bundles in your life. Uh, I, I if only Desmond had been allowed to keep kitties in the hatch. That'd be great. Yeah, cats in the hatch would have been uh, the cats. The cat in the hatch uh, is a is a poem waiting. Press to be the button every hundred and eight. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to tarry. You don't have to wait. Wow, that sounds a lot like Cat Jackula, to be honest with you. No, please. That's my. That's Doctor. Uh, uh, now I'm trying to think of like a Susie and Lost pun. It's not working. Workshop uh, it. We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. But speaking of Count Jackula, let's go forth into the jungle with Man of Science, Man of Faith, directed by Jack Bender, uh, Count Jackula Bender, uh, written by Damon Lindelof. Solo credit. Uh, it originally aired September 21st, 2005, and it does indeed center on. Jack Shepard, uh, but it also introduces a massive new player to the lost mythology. Even if we're not going to spend an insane amount of time with this character this season, he's going to factor in in a very big way for the first couple of weeks of the show, and he will be a pivotal player for the finale and onward. Uh, so let's introduce him to the Down the Hatch series Bible that we continue to cultivate here on the podcast. Once again, concocted by the great Ben behind the curtain. Here's the first official Down the Hatch series Bible entry of season two. Are you ready? Dr. Jin Seuss Kwan. I think I got it. <laughs> oh, God. Dr. Seuss Kwan is definitely, uh, that's definitely the way to go. Okay. This okay, is not perfect. about Dr. Seuss I just, Kwan. I just wanted to like resolve <laughs> no, that it's great. thread. It's you great. Know? I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Please proceed. <laughs> okay. All right. Down the Hatch series Bible entry for season two. A man who wears his dedication and his heartbreak on his face. Desmond was once a promising businessman with prospects for moving up in the Widmore Corporation. But when the powerful Charles Widmore found out Desmond was courting his daughter, 
he would only give his blessing to their relationship on one condition, that Desmond prove his worth by winning Widmore's eponymous boat race around the world. While on the race, Desmond found himself stranded on the island and pushing a button in the hatch every 108 minutes. But despite years of being alone, Desmond has never lost his singular focus on the one thing he wants most of all, finding a way to return to his beloved Phoebe? <laughs> it's, it says Phoebe right. in the write-up. I mean, I mean, listen, it's true to the series Bible that we get things I guess you gotta wrong. get one thing wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, it, took me, it took me a couple things. I thought maybe, maybe Nickel could have been another good one. <laughs> I love you, Nick. Uh, I love you, Nickel. I don't know. I love you, Phoebe. Doesn't have quite the same ring to it as I love. Uh, you, Penny. We're, we're gonna we're gonna have to take some work, Josh, to work on our uh, Scottish brogue. Luckily, I love you, Penny. Luckily, I brought in a teacher uh, oh, to help no. us. So oh, no. oh, uh, no. I'm just gonna we're gonna we're gonna he'll come back in with Desmond, but I just want to say hello to our teacher. Hey, <laughs> who is that? Trick. It's, it's Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> irritating miniature piece of burden. Wow, Shrek. We're just teaching Josh, okay, how to speak in a Scottish brogue. All right, so some inside baseball on how down the hatch works. If you haven't been able to figure it out by now, uh, Mike has the keys to the soundboard. I do not. I have no ability to insert the sounds into, into down the hatch. So, like, almost any time there's, like, an audio gag on down the hatch it's all on mike bloom and you always surprise me with this stuff like when you learned how, how to speak korean and then french and now shrek <laughs> look i'm sorry all right don't need to apologize shrek it's okay <laughs> mike <laughs> did you like did you assemble a shrek soundboard or are you just using a shrek soundboard no no, I, I found one online. All right, good. I was going to say that you have a child, Mike. You can't be spending your free time building Shrek soundboards. Do I have a child or do I have a little donkey? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, now I'm not going to ever be able to think about Desmond without thinking about Shrek. Yeah, I think we made Shrezmond a thing now. Uh, Shrekmond. 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 <laughs> oh, my God. I recommend you forget about Shrekmond as quickly as humanly possible. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. I think we might have to rewrite that series <laughs> final now. They can just make it the plot of Shrek. <laughs> All right, let's get into... Our, our summary of the episode. <laughs> uh, you know, Mike, I, have I have I told you that I have a, a, a cardboard cutout of uh, Austin Powers in my in my in my office here at home? Oh my! Uh, I had no idea. So I was just I was just looking at him as uh, as we were going through Sheckman, and I was like, oh my god, he's looking at me. <laughs> he knows. He the knows. Mike Myers Collective <laughs> he is aware. Knows. He knows. He's aware. Oh my god! All right. So the episode begins. Beep, beep, beep. That's my impression of the Hatch computer. We uh, should also say one of the many things that came out of that sequence from the Hatch video is that apparently the Hatch beeping or the computer beeping is sourced from a supermarket scanner. 
Mm. Uh, which is super interesting. They went to like a bunch of different supermarkets to get one, but they said that they purposely did that to sort of be much like how the smoke monster uses a bunch of, you know, noises from uh, the urban landscape. It's sort of a way to take sounds from the outside world and bastardize them to create a new reality on the island. I so like if you've it. Ever, if you've ever been at like a Kroger's and you hear the hatch, that's what it's from. Yeah. Uh, Chad Kroger's. Yes, exactly. If you've been attending a Chad Kroger concert and he suddenly starts beeping, they sourced him to create, to write the the beeping from the hatch for specifically for Lost. I love you, Nickelback. All right. So <laughs> so Desmond, here's Desmond. Uh, we know he's Desmond. We have no idea who he is uh, in the moment on the first watch. This man with longish hair who uh, is wearing... Uh, since we, we see him so fleetingly, it could be like a, a an all white onesie for all we yeah, know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like a white t-shirt and underwear, but he sort of does I mean, it's like definitely what it is. But it could be like a sleeveless onesie, right? They, and, but he does something. Maybe the underwear was what stuck out to me because he does sort of like a risky business type of thing in this mm-hmm. in the style of Tom Cruise when he hops into that rolling chair and like slides over the computer, all you know, sleek like. That would be fun to do a re-edit of this first scene. Uh, to the to the da 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 da, uh, or just like any music. Well, he does take those old records off the shelf. He does. He does indeed. Uh, he he hops off of the. He's got dibs on top bunk. You know, uh, Kelvin's dead, so he can just sleep wherever he wants now. Um, and he he hops off his bed, slides onto a chair, inputs the numbers into the computer. And do you want to call this uh, a continuity gaffe uh, that he's able to get to the computer so quickly from his bed? Can we be charitable and say that we're just swiftly cutting from the bedroom to him in the, the geodome. <laughs> Could you imagine Desmond sliding what, like, feet just in that maybe superficial rolling chair that he's just able to, like, go through rooms on that rolling chair in one swift movement? Yeah, what if he keeps the rolling chair in his bedroom, he hops off of the of the bed, hops into the rolling chair, and then just, like, scooches <laughs> from the bedroom in his rolling chair uh, all, like, uh, like 50 feet that it would take to get from there to the computer room yeah i mean look the uh, as is discovered in the secrets from the hatch thing there's a lot of changes i think that resulted the more they got into the hatch totally forgivable yeah very much so you you see one here even when he's at the computer he's putting spaces in when he types the numbers when ordinarily you don't need to do that so i think we can certainly forgive this opening sequence especially when it comes to distance and especially with just how damn good it is it's so good it's such a good scene uh also should be noted that uh we see the cursor blinking on the computer uh i always loved sort of like the green frowny face yes of, that reminds me of the, like a, of a moon and night from aqua <laughs> yes Force. oh my god yes we're the moon and nights we <laughs> need to push the button every 108 minutes or we will blow up your planet exactly yeah maybe that was actually the big secret behind season two we didn't realize it it's possible i mean uh it does look like desmond's making a master shake in uh in the hatch at one point yeah it looks uh, pretty damn grody uh, looks it doesn't look so good uh so desmond Desmond's going to type in the numbers. Uh, he's going to he's going to get rid of that green frowny face. The moon and is gone. Uh, and then he's going to he's going to go into the main room, which is a mess. It's disheveled. Uh, and he is going to pull out a record. He's going to put the record on. And there you have it. Your iconic Mama Cass 
make your own kind of music. And Mike, I feel I, I don't like the fact that we have made it uh, more than a half hour into this podcast or about a half hour into this podcast. We haven't heard any Mama Cass yet. Uh, I believe you have a little ditty that you could you could play here right now. We crashed on this island and found a big hatch in the ground. Get chased by polar bears and a big black smoke. And there's others here too. So we're going down the hatch with Josh Wiggler. Lost down the hatch with Josh. Down the hatch with Josh Wiggler. Even if nobody else comes along. All right. Well, that was written a long time ago before Mike Bloom. I was going to say, it's beautiful, but the yeah, Mike Bloom erasure, yeah. we do so not we, stand. We, we erased Mike Bloom from the history of Down the Hatch. That's Alex G. That was uh, once upon a time before Mike was involved with Down the Hatch, and Alex G. was workshopping some potential theme songs for, for Down the Hatch, where we were going to have like a rotating panel of guests, uh, since I, I hadn't figured out who the co-host was going to be, uh, and then my my friend who I was going to do it with didn't quite work out, and then Mike, uh, we, we created this beautiful thing that we have uh, we've been doing for the past several months now. Uh, but before all of that, Alex, she was working on theme songs. And that was one of the theme songs that oh, came up. Uh, it's awesome. I, it, I, I, I love it. I love that. The Alex G is just uh, spectacular stuff. Well, uh, speaking so- speaking of that scene, actually, uh, I was able to do some more research in addition to Secrets uh, of the Hatch. And I actually... You know how sometimes uh, when working in production, sometimes if they don't know if they got the song, they put in like a scratch track. Yeah. Uh, so I actually have some footage of what that original song was. So oh. if, you, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll play it here and I'll sort of like it's it's a video. So I'll sort of just narrate. Uh, OK, what cool. Happens. Great. All right. OK, so Desmond's leaping through the records and he picks one up. Yeah. Let's see. And he puts it down. And then it goes down. Everybody with me, who drinks on me? Hey, y'all, who you came with? Who you leaving with? This my line, everybody with me. Hey, y'all, who you came with? Who you leaving with? Everybody with me, who drinks on me? Wow, who knew? Yeah, I who knew. Knows? Desmond being a big DJ Dom guy does not surprise me. No, I think uh, I, I think he attended like their concert in Glasgow before his boat trip. So did he bring the DJ Dom record with him? Did that come to the island with Desmond or was it already was was it already part of the line of the hatch? Like, was it already because the hatch, you would imagine, predates predates (laughs) DJ Dom by by quite a bit. I don't think that the hatch came with DJ Dom unless DJ Dom was part of the group that went back to the 70s and produced the record. Ah! Okay. All right. All right. Rich, take note. Uh, DJ Dom coming down, uh, going back to the Dharma days. Once we get to the season five edition yeah, of broad, Lost broad RPG. Rap, sort of like Marty McFly bringing the Chuck Berry into the 50s. All right. So this is like the best opening scene of anything ever. Uh, I mean, it's so it's so well done outside of, you know, make your own kind of music. It is wordless. It is faceless. It's so 
alien right now, right? Because remember, we spent, outside of flashbacks, an entire season, 25 episodes, on an island, relatively in the jungle. And the first thing we're seeing here is someone seemingly going about their day. And we yeah. have no idea what the hell is going on. They're doing, he's doing dishes. He's, uh, you know, uh, using an, a very weird stationary bike that has racing socks on it. He's doing chin-ups. He's working on them abs. Uh, you know, he's making that grody-ass yeah, green, he's like with green the, drink. With the protein powder, the cherries, and there's like some yellow thing that I was never, I've never been able to identify what the yellow thing is in the, in the smoothie. This, this go around, I'd like to imagine it's a canned peach in honor mm, from of the peach Ray Mullen. Yeah, exactly. It always looked like a banana pepper to me or something like that. <laughs> it's like, why are you making a protein shake with cherries, like maraschino cherries and banana peppers? I like is to live dangerously. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know, Shrekman. That's pretty gross. <laughs> I put bugs in there. <laughs> I put banana peppers in it. Uh, I love, I love your banana peppy. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of gross, but I, I it, it is so jarring. It's so jarring, and it's not until you get to him like uh, holding up the 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 you know he's injecting himself with the vaccine, and at that moment, like something now feels like uh, not just off. But scary, like now something feels like off and, and wrong and is grounding you in, in this this um, this really discomforting place. And you don't even have time to process it before uh, the explosion of the hatch occurs from Desmond's perspective and causes everything to rattle and oh. causes dust to, to emerge. And then the, the, the Giacchino strings are, are, are streaking in um, and Desmond's suiting up and he goes to the armor and he pulls out all the guns. He pulls out the telescope. He's got the, the this intricate series of mirrors that I I to this day do not understand the practicality of that versus all of the other ways that they could have a security system. But whatever. Well, I mean, listen, we we we're going to see eventually the building of the hatch. You know, maybe they either didn't have the budget for it or the the idea of this closed circuit surveillance system was still an alien concept. But I love this shift in tone where the dust coming down also represents sort of like the reality of lost peeking in and like you said the Giacchino score really sets a tone change where now we get introduced to the more dangerous elements we've seen the more you know day-to-day -day elements of like hey there's a smoothie there's a bike there's a record player but now uh, there's a vaccine there's a weird uniform there's a gun there's a right. surveillance system and you're like oh okay so there's something clearly more nefarious here at hand but i love the pov of following the mirrors i feel like from yes. a cinematography perspective this is an extremely well done episode but just to have the camera follow those mirrors and at one point off. like it, it very briefly in one of the mirrors you can see the jack and john reflection it's kind of yeah. blink yeah. or you'll miss it um but you can see it especially if you know to look for it uh and it's Oh man, when we're like going through and it's the da 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 and then like it's coming out and like oh my god, you see that it's Jack and John. Like at that point, like you already like are starting to feel like oh shit, we're in the hatch, aren't we? We're in the hatch. That's what this whole thing is. And then the camera turns around, it like swivels around, so its back is now to the ground and its face up, and there's Jack and John and just the horns that are blaring. Um, it's it's a beautiful, haunting, horrifying piece of music from Giacchino. It is beautifully shot. It is brilliantly written by Damon Lindelof, sole writer credit. Um, and it is just an immaculate, 
series of scenes. Um, I think say what you will about season two versus the other seasons of Lost. Uh, I I mean, it's the, what's the competition the, for, for the best opening scene of any season of Lost? It's this versus the pilot, really, right. for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that there are people who, who swear by the opening scene of season three. And I'm not knocking that uh, that opening is very powerful. Josh, and you're not in the book well. club anymore. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking that scene, um, but it doesn't have like the same. It, it 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 relies very much on like the same magic trick that is pulled off here in in the second season premiere, uh, where you you're disoriented. You're starting in this place where you don't know where you are. Are we on the island? Is this a flashback? And oh god, we're on the island. And everything with Juliet, I think, like you can kind of like figure out at that point. Uh, oh, this is probably on the island as well. Uh, well, that, like well, that's it, the thing as well is that I think what makes this so great is that you wouldn't have openings like season three without this. Yeah. Because again, we're used to only see the, there might be other characters besides our losties, but they're never from their point of view. This is somebody completely new who we've never met before. We don't even see their face and we're seeing an entire opening scene from their perspective. It is game changing in so many ways. And it is so brilliantly done in that a word doesn't need to be said. It's actually very reminiscent of how we end Exodus, right? Where, you know, the entire final act of that episode is completely wordless. And I think Lost has really shown how much beauty just lies in visuals and how much they're able to tell just with a few stark images. And that's another case right here. And I think Obviously, they Carlton Cuse talks about this in the aforementioned uh, 15 minute video that they realize very quickly, oh, crap, we need to show what's down the hatch ASAP. And so I think starting this off is going to help answer that question, but also doing it in a true Lostian way where it's weird, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Um I took like um, it's not even worth having the conversation to me of like is this is this better than the pilot because we'll just be here for for way too long. Um, I know John Krause submitted the idea that this is the, this is the most iconic opening to any like TV show ever, uh, and it's it's way up there. It's way up there. Uh, collective gasps were heard around the world when this occurred on TV when it first broadcast all the way back in two thousand and five. Uh, it's ranking things arbitrary and reductive, as someone might say, even though we do do that here on uh, Down the Hatch. Uh, but I think suffice it to say, it's just a, a spectacular, really, really stunning scene. Um, it, it cues us up to the first Lost title card. And when we come back from commercial, uh, we get this scene with all of our characters who are now back with Hurley, Kate, Jack and Locke post-hatch explosion. I believe that that is going to take us to our first sound of the episode. 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42, 4, 8. We're dead. 15, doomed and dead. 16. Are you okay? Uh, yeah. Awesome. I just have to pee. Great idea to go look in the burning death hole. we could get everyone inside this thing so they'd be safe that plan is not gonna work we'll never get everyone down in time
water. Shallow. Sounds like a puddle. Like 40 feet down? 50 tops. We could use the wire we pulled from the fuselage. Rig up a harness. John, we're leaving now. Yes. Good idea. Let's do that. We all went through a lot to get here, Jack. Now, the ladder's broken. We're going to lower 40 people down there one by one. They're waiting for us to come back and tell them what to do, so let's forget about the harnesses. Jack. What? Why don't we all just calm down here? Huh? Look, if you want to go exploring in the morning, that's fine. But tonight, we're done. I'm going to go get the dynamite that we didn't use, and we're heading back to the caves. So how about you pack it up, John? Sure. Of course. Okay. Why don't you want to go down there, Jack? So these are the first official words of Lost Season 2. And I think it's very emblematic that we start out with these four. Granted, it picks up right where we left off with the, you know, explosion of the hatch. But, I mean, say what you want to about characters like, you know, uh, like Sawyer and Desmond later on. But I feel like these are going to be our four main Lost characters in terms of, like, fan investment and writing investment. And it's like a great way to immerse yourself back in who we should really care about. You know, Jack and Locke immediately go at one another as soon as Jack feels like the validity of the Hatch mission was done. Kate is trying to play the mediator, true to her MVP status, trying to, you know, keep all parties at bay. Hurley is just muttering the numbers while also muttering how doomed they are. I love and, that. And, We're and, doomed to dead. Like, I just, and, I and joking it. about, how, you know, trying to lie badly about how he has to pee. It's, it's a great way to immerse ourselves in this group that's going to turn out to be very, very important, not just for this season, but for the rest of Lost. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and really heightening the tension between Jack and Locke right away. Uh, Locke not being deterred at all by what has happened and what they see now that the hatch is uh, still mysterious, even with the lid open. It actually only intrigues him more. For Jack, he's just back to the practicality of like, what this was supposed to be, it's not going to be useful in that direction anymore. So let's get the hell out of here, Locke, uh, and snapping back into into leader mode. Um, just the pot shots that these two characters take at each other over the course of the, the first few um, scenes of this episode, the first few episodes, really. Uh, even by the end of the episode, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but like, Jack's going to point a gun at Locke. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, let, let's talk about that, though, because, again, we need to remember how we ended season one, which yeah, up. right he, after he, is, is, is Jack telling Kate, like, we're going to have a lock problem. Let's remember that, you know, people might be saying like, oh, Jack ditched the mission. Like Jack says it doesn't matter what it is. It kind of does. But let's remember that Jack literally only wanted the hatch to put people down there because he heard the others were coming. Like he did not give a lick about what else was happening, especially, you know, given what happened with Boone. And he only really pursued this after Danielle Russo came to him and said, hey, you better GTFO. So now right. that that mission sort of has been proved unsuccessful, Jack's on to the next thing, whereas Locke definitely has a different type of personal investment. It's not even it's definitely a personal investment where I think Jack's is more of a quote unquote professional interest as, as a leader. And so you see the dichotomy right out the gate there where Jack's like, great, on to the next mission. And Locke's like, can't we stay a little bit longer, please, dad? Right, right. And I mean, also not for nothing. Jack thinks that Locke is a murderer. Uh, yep. So, you know, there's still that tension uh, hanging in the air. Uh, let's go to our first flashback. This is a Jack flashback episode. OK, here we go. 
Wig watch, wig watch is fully, fully in effect as uh, to signal the fact that Jack is a much younger man in these scenes. We've got Matthew Fox's party of five hair back full tilt boogie, as Jeff Probst likes to say. Uh, And I know that people want us to like really rag on the wig. I don't have a lot of thoughts on it because I remember Matthew Fox from Party of Five. And this kind of he just looks sort of like Charlie Salinger to me. Mm, It's really not that out of character for me. For me, it looks like uh, if someone was doing the porn parody of 90s era ER and this was the person to play the George Clooney role of wow. like, okay, you got to kind of look like him, including having this hairstyle. Is like, this what Clooney's hair looked like in ER? He had like sort of like the, I don't even know what yeah, you Yeah, I think, I think it he sort of had like the Stamos going on, you know, of like the feathered on top look. It just looks weird on him. We, we talked about this a bit with the deus ex machina wig on log. It's just something you're not used to seeing. Like the short hair works well for Matthew Fox. And granted, I think Matthew Fox puts in a really good performance in these flashbacks in particular that, that definitely took me away from it. But occasionally my, my eye will wander back up to his hairline and be like, ah, I can't believe they let him onto set looking like that. Just do yourself a favor and Google Party of Five, Charlie Salinger, do a Google image search for that, which is Matthew Fox's character from Party of Five. And it's really not that inconsistent with the way that he looked on Ooh. Party of Five. Yeah, I know. He he has even longer hair then. Yes, it's more like this is, I mean, like that's like mid-seasons full house John Stamos is what he's rocking back on Party of Five. So it was never that jarring to me because I was a Party of Five guy. So I was like, oh, we're just doing a Charlie Salinger throwback. But I understand that it's 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 jarring for many a person. uh, So we have to comment on it. I think it looks I think it looks best, Mike, when uh, they're trying to do sort of like the sweat effect. Yes. Uh, after he's like done like his run. Yeah. After we, uh, in, after we find out that Jack is very when he wears like the prison Mike bandana later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, prison Jack. Uh, uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I guess it makes sense because, again, maybe they're trying to go for the whole like ER thing by having him, you know, again, look at look this uh, Clooney like. But yeah, this is Jack, you know, as uh, he's still a surgeon. He looks younger. This reminds me of like on certain shows when they would do flashbacks and they'd like put the character in bangs, especially right, female right. characters, to make them look younger. They sort of tried right. to do something here with him. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the Obviously, the, the big deal of this scene is it's Sarah, it's his future wife, it's Julie Bowen's character. Uh, she's been in a big car wreck. She's about to die. There was another person involved in the wreck who's kind of an afterthought, and, and Jack has to pick between this man or Sarah, and this man is not just nobody. Uh, cert- certainly, even if he was a somebody, he's not nobody. This is a, This is a human bean we're talking about here but this is uh shannon's father this is uh, i believe adam rutherford Mm -hmm. uh is his name and you hear it in the background and jack makes the choice he have to choose jack so you're making daddy proud right now uh he chooses sarah he can only save one person uh he doesn't have you know he can't clone himself he is only one man um and so he he chooses to operate on sarah he makes that choice uh mr rutherford dies at 8 15 a.m uh jack is able to to fix sarah at least for the time being her sack is flooded i don't know which sack but one of the sacks is flooded. yeah i mean i there was a big old piece of steering column shrapnel sticking out of her. i want maybe like her lung yeah, was, was filling with blood so i also know that there's this weird thing where jack talks to this guy assumingly an intern's like okay can you intubate and he's like no only you can which i mean Maybe things would have been a bit different if this guy could intubate. You know, legally, that might be the case. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a magician. But Josh, guess who? Guess what the name of this intern was? What was his name? 
Brian Costas. Oh, Brian. <laughs> Brian, you cost us Shannon's father. All the worst Brian's. I don't know if I'm going to give this guy an LVP. No, I no, I, I would so. say I'll give him a ghost LVP point just because he, was able, he, he caused a ghost to happen. Yeah, so he he ghost lowers as Jin's father continues to ghost rise <laughs> over the pack of the MVPs and LVPs. But I just love this gathering of Brian's being like the worst character. Yeah, a murder of Brian's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so Shannon's dad dies. Sarah lives. She says, I want to dance at my wedding. Well, good luck. You will. You will someday. But uh, right now, it's it's not looking great. Um, and you see that it's Sarah. And that's like the moment where you see that it's Sarah. And so like if you connect that back to uh, to do no harm, like, oh, OK, so here we go. This is the origin story of how how these two people fell in love. So to that point, Josh, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if we swapped the flashbacks from Man of Science, Man of Faith with the flashbacks from Do No Harm. Hmm. Because I, I really love this series of flashbacks, as we'll get into, but my main issue is that, to your point, we know the story, Sarah tells it at the rehearsal dinner, so it's not a surprise when she says, I can wiggle my toes. I wonder, if you didn't know what was going to happen, does that help drive the point home further? Of, oh, wow, Jack is this man of science, but actually you can't perform a miracle. No, it doesn't it does it doesn't really for me. I think that the the fact that you know that Sarah is going to make it um actually puts you in the position of being somebody who believes in a miracle. Uh cuz you know a miracle is going to occur. You you know that something is going to happen where uh where Sarah is going to be able to walk again. Uh that Jack's surgery on Sarah is going to work. And so Jack being so hard on himself like you're now expecting a victory for him. And I, I, I think when you're in those shoes for the flashback, it kind of puts you on pins and needles for the present tense. Um, and you don't know exactly what's going to happen with Jack in the hatch. And the fact that uh, a miracle of sorts is going to occur for Jack there as well. This one in a million shot that the person who is inside the hatch is somebody who's associated with the memory, at least, mm -hmm. of the miracle that occurred that you'd be hard pressed to deny a miracle occurred to save sarah and to make sure that she would be able to walk again uh jack has every you know he, he says that there's there's no way that it, that it worked and and miraculously it does so he, he, he whether or not he believes in it a miracle occurs for sarah he's capable of that uh and to have desmond miraculously there this person that he met back then i think that it, it, it allows for that to land i think if, if you get in this episode and you have like sort of like the double landing of, of two miracles occurring, I think would, would be a bit of a miracle overload. You don't want to, you don't want to go too heavy on the miracles. Just a little sprinkle is enough. Yeah. I, I do think that, you know, if you're looking at it from a thematic perspective, I do think it makes more sense. I just think, you know, we're going to start to get to a period where maybe the flashbacks are not as sure. surprising as we might. I mean, nothing can ever really be a walkabout in that regard. And I do wonder, and obviously I think they had probably, wanted to write Do No Harm before they figured out what they wanted to write for Man of Science, Man of Faith. But I do wonder if we end up meeting Sarah this way and seeing how they fall in love, and then we'll see, uh, you know, how the wedding happens. And it'll also be an interesting accompaniment to Do No Harm as well, because we would see in the flashback a case where Jack was able to make a miracle happen and was able to fix somebody and, you know, make that promise. And then it just makes it that more crushing that on the island, he wasn't able to do that. 
Uh, but that being said, I do love Do No Harm. It's just it's just our fun way of futzing with playing puppeteer and trying to switch things around for a character perspective. All right, so we go to the caves and we're going to visit the rest of the survivors uh, for the first time in the episode. Uh, and we see Charlie and he's there and he's regaling everybody with the tale of the search for the French woman. Uh, and he's like going to just like really throw her under the bus. She's a bloody wingnut. It's all bollocks. It was a ghost story. She set the fire herself. And Saeed is looking on as Charlie is saying all this. Charlie's like, what? Saeed's like, it's nothing. Uh, and I feel like Saeed, the way that he looks at Charlie is definitely the way that I look at Charlie in that moment, too. Especially knowing that, like, Charlie stole one of the heroin statues. Mm. Like, he's, he's hiding one of the heroin statues. And here he is saying that, like, Rousseau was super dishonest. Here we are, Mike. I mean, season two is going to be a tough one for Charlie Pace. Yeah, it's not a good pace for Charlie. Also, the fact that he's like, there are no others. When the fact that, hey, remember that guy that hung you up from a tree? Like 10 episodes ago, yeah. he was definitely an other. So it's yeah. not like there are no others. There were just no others at that fire, dude. Yeah. Uh, Shannon is going to be having some issues. She's going around from person to person asking about Vincent. Uh, Vincent's gone AWOL. Inside, uh, it's like, where are you going? And she grabs a torch and she says, I lost the damn dog. Oh. Uh, I always loved that line. Uh, but I feel like the Shannon that you see in this moment uh, and the Shannon you get in this episode, I love Shannon in this episode. Uh, it it really bums me out that Shannon's with us for. I was gonna say we're in like what like a five episode range of Shannon getting killed here. Shannon Shannon dies in episode six, you know, and we don't even get Shannon, you know, heavily at least in every single episode. I don't think we get her. Uh, period. I don't think we're gonna get her at all in a drift. Um, so yeah, we're really running out of time. Times times a ticking for for shannon rutherford and here she is in this episode i think like at the almost at the height of her game with the confidence that she's gonna go out into the jungle looking for vincent on the same night that the others are supposed to show up uh, maybe ill-advised but points for bravery i would it's so interesting i want to compare shannon in this episode to actually jack and white rabbit where both of them are going to have moments where they stumble into the middle of the jungle and see something that, you know, they feel is just an illusion, but might be something more depending on the mythology of the island. But she's going to say later on, right, of like how she hasn't been sleeping, whether it's due to morning boon or just the stress of the others being on their tail, not their tailies. And so it's actually very similar circumstances and not to say that Shannon's stepping up to any sort of leadership position. But if you look at her psychological composition, especially compared to, again, what Jack feels at those moments where he's at his physical weakest, it makes a lot of sense as to, A, you know, how they're encountering a lot of things, especially her, like, her behavior with Saeed, where she's just at the end of her rope mentally, and right. B, this idea of seeing something and being like, I must be crazy this can't be real, real weight, is it crazy? And sort of trying to reconcile your own sanity with what may legitimately be happening on a weird island. Yeah. All right. So back at the hatch, uh, Hurley is coming for not Jack's wig, but Locke's wig. <laughs> if he were wearing one, he will in a couple of episodes. Uh, he's not thrilled that Locke blew up the, the hatch. He's like, hey, remember when I was running around flaring my arms and saying, hey, don't do that. Please don't. And you did it anyway. And Locke's like, I'm sorry, I was excited. Yeah, he's like, oh, that was a great time, Hurley. Yeah, it was a very good time, Hurley. Uh, we did good it time, so we could Hurley. get inside. We, could do, we did it so we could get inside, Hugo. Well, that's the uh, thing is that it speaks again towards Locke's perspective. And we'll see that's why he ends up just deliberately disobeying Jack's orders later on. Interrupts one of his speeches to go back down the house. It hatches because at this point, Locke's not listening to anybody right. else. He is no. so driven by his sense of purpose and fate. And now that he is at the doorstep of something that he has been working tirelessly to do, 
he he's not gonna you know let anyone get in his way so even if it hurley even if hurley stood over the spark i think Locke would like light hurley on fire to have him additionally cause the wick and the spark to move along to light up that hatch he was he so might, adamant he about might, going in there he might stop short of lighting hurley on fire but i but your point is received all the same <laughs> and and i i, I love sort of like the the glee on Locke's face contrasted with what at this point we know to be in the hatch on first viewing uh like you know that there is an armed man down there so like Locke, you seem really excited to meet somebody who could blow your head off uh certainly obviously we're excited to see Locke and desmond interact in a little while but i just think on that first run interpretation of the scene uh that's another reason why this is very tense it's also tense because jack and john are still at odds and jack's gonna be like i thought we were going in to save everybody's lives and Locke's like oh yeah yeah we're here to save everybody <laughs> everybody's lives uh and jack's like oh maybe it was just our destiny right john <laughs> oh it's like maybe maybe it was it's just very like uh, where's the bring a knife one of one of Locke's 400 knives you could cut the tension with yeah and i mean i, I think it's just jack is very frustrated at the point i mean they literally went to hell and back getting this dynamite arst is gone all to open up this thing and it turns out from jack's perspective there's nothing of value there. he's annoyed he's annoyed he's, he's, annoyed. he's annoyed at it whereas and i think he's annoyed at the fact that Locke is not annoyed by it he had a lot of suspicions towards Locke at the end of the season about okay he's a bit too committed to the island and this is only cementing them and it's just separating them a bit further uh, and what's separating them a bit more is that Locke still wants to go down there despite the fact Josh that there is quarantine, quarantine. printed on the door quarantine printed on the door that Kate is going to show to everybody uh and you know does it really lead anywhere maybe maybe not not well, really. we'll talk about that in the others. I think there's another about the vaccines, and I, right, I haven't thought so about it. All right, so we'll talk about that later. Uh, let's resume the search for Vincent. Said is joining Shannon on the search. Uh, she says, like, this is crazy. Why are we doing this? You haven't slept in days. Uh, and she's like, listen, watching the dog is the one thing anyone's ever really asked me to do. I'm not going to tell the kid I lost his dog because I'm tired. Uh, so they, you know, very serendipitously, there's Vincent. It's just chilling in the middle of the jungle. Uh, and they like talk about how, like, all right, I'm going to circle around him. You go from the front. This is basically how Emily and I are wrangling the new cats. There's mm -hmm. a lot of this going on where, like, the cats don't want to stay still. They don't trust us yet. Uh, so there's a lot of this, like, right. And, right. and then you you trip and fall going after Dougie. And then I appear sopping wet in front of your face, muttering things backwards. Yeah, it's very, very strange. Anyway, that's a ba that's basically exactly what is going to happen here for Shannon, where she and Saeed are going to are going to try and, and pin Vincent down and. Uh, and then everything goes to, to hell in a handbasket as Shannon's going to trip up in the woods and shenanigans. Shao and Sue, let's listen in. What is it? What? 
I can't wait for Lost 2 when Walt makes a living as a YouTuber doing ASMR videos. Yeah, just uh, backwards talking. Very Twin Peaks, uh, the Mm -hmm. backwards talk here. Uh, Sometimes my arms bend back. Um, Look, does this go anywhere? Again, not really. To me, that doesn't matter because the scene is so effectively terrifying. Uh, It's just so scary seeing Walt in this context, you know, like you, you said before, like we don't get Sawyer in this episode. We don't get Michael. We don't know what happened to Jin. So you don't really know what happened to the people on the raft until the second week of season two. But this is the way that you like you wink at the at the raft explosion. Something horrible happened out there. Walt, we don't know what happened to Walt. What is he doing here in the middle of the jungle? He should not be able to be here, and he certainly shouldn't be able to like blink in and out of existence. Uh, yeah. It's just so unsettling. It's so creepy. Just adds to that horror movie quality of this episode. Well, not only that, he is dripping wet, which is strange because Walt just got put on the boat. So it brought up theories of like, did the boat sink? And Walt is now underwater. Did Walt drown and is now transmitting himself to Shannon? Because, again, we know Walt is quote unquote special, but we don't know what that means. He is now part of the whispers before. And it's it's interesting that Saeed's the one with her that sort of like busts up the whisper party. But he had experienced the whispers, but they didn't have a body behind it. Now this is someone who is actually whispering. I agree that from a tonal perspective and just from a scene perspective, it is so interesting and terrifying but there is admittedly a part of a part of my brain that's like just makes me realize, like we talked about in special of like, man, I wish they went somewhere with this. 100%. Or, they like, or like they they explained at least a little bit of why this was. We've been trying to do our own headcanon behind it, uh, you know, really trying to to moisten our brains, uh, much like Walt with his body, with this idea of, of why he was doing this. But, you know, considering how little of Walt we're unfortunately going to see, we don't really get this contextualized as all. We don't really know why he's sopping wet. Did, did Ghost Walt accidentally, like, appear in the wrong place and just happen to, like, fall into the waterfall at the caves accidentally before appearing in front of Shannon? And that's why he's all wet. Yeah, and one of the other things, too, is as we've as we've talked about and as Javier Grillo Marks Watch talks about in his his big uh, lost will and testament that Lindelof like wouldn't put anything on screen or wouldn't authorize anything to go on screen unless he felt that the writers had a pretty good explanation for why. Uh, so Walt appearing in this context, you got to imagine that they had a, a, an explanation for it and we just never got it because they, right. they abandoned the Walt storyline. So it's like. Man, what were you going to do? Because I bet it could have been really cool. I bet it could have been very, very cool, whatever they had in mind. We just we never know. Um, In retrospect, do you think that Locke should have made a bunch of dog whistles and given them to people in? uh, Because as we talked about in the feedback show, Vincent runs off an inordinate amount of times. And it seems like the whistle is a good reason to call him back. Do you think that she should have had one on hand and so she wouldn't have to deal with this whole whisper kerfuffle if she just blew it and got Vincent back to her? Kind of don't think that Locke is making a dog whistle for Shannon after she shot him in the head. (laughs) Maybe she should have threatened him at gunpoint. Yeah, yeah, you know. Make me the damn dog whistle, Make me the damn dog whistle. Uh, The whispers come back. We know that the whispers are dead people who cannot move on, trapped on the island. Uh, Lostpedia has transcripts of all of the whispers uh, throughout Lost. Um, so I, I have the, the whispers that we heard in this scene. If you want me to, to read to you, uh, what they are, yeah. uh, according to Lostpedia, at least, uh, and then stop me if you've got any theories behind any of the whispers that we hear. Uh, so this is the transcript. Do you see her? I think she's right behind us. I can see eye to eye. Shut up. I think she sees. 
This crosses my trail now, doll. Is that a dead person who's talking to who brought all the dolls on the on the? Plane? Yes, that was the, the doll smuggler. Yeah, I think so. It's very cold, cold, cold. Uh, thousand miles. Does that mean Miles is going to come back to the island after the end of Lost, and he's going to die, and there's going to be a thousand ghost miles? I was going to say, or they just clone Miles they in clone the facility and make a thousand where, of where, them. Where Bopo was cloned. Imagine an army of Miles. Uh, let's continue. I know it all. I know it all. Oh, no, Robin Steven. No! No! They no! made it! They died. It's the eye. It's the eye. All right, so one of the ghosts is trying to spoil the final image of Lost. Uh, <laughs> yes, that, that's actually Damon Lindelof yeah. as a ghost. <laughs> the antenna, 10 out of 10. Ooh, a nice rating for the antenna. Very okay, good. So, Very high-quality so, right. antenna. So here's one of my thoughts, Josh. What if... The whispers are from obviously the people who can't move on. What if it's the last thing they either said or oh, thought before oh, they died? That's brutal. Uh, the antenna, ten out of ten, and then like he fell off the roof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was trying to up. fix it, or you know, like uh, shut up could be like someone like harassing one of their uh, their like mission mates before they get killed. Before they get shot. I think she sees could have been like someone before they get sniped by Danielle Rousseau. Wow. Yeah, I can see that. I can imagine that. I can see eye to eye with that. Uh, what else is there? Somebody is walking behind us. Yeah, and that person just gets headshot. Uh, right. What? Which one do you think it was? Uh, that's another another assassination. Final, you know, great words to say before you're assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So that's clearly not Robert Steven. Yeah, that's someone getting drowned by slime on You Can't Do That on Television. <laughs> 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 Okay, we're not going to do that. Uh, eye to eye. Someone is still trying to spoil. Someone is watching a goofy movie in the hatch. Uh, right beside us. In a minute. In a minute. In a minute. Uh, give it time. Is there time? Uh, then there's been to Black Rock. Uh, once again, someone saying, I, it's the eye. Really trying to spoil the end of Lost. Is she 815? Is she like the full plane? Is that what you're asking? Mm, or it could be like, I wonder if that was shorthand that the others used when it came to the people, the Ooh, losties of like, yeah. oh, are, you, are you, maybe it's like a code word. Like, are you a 15? Yeah. Yeah. It's like five. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. These are the, the oceanic eight fifteen survivors. They're eight fifteen. I like that. That's good slang. That's good lost jargon. Should we implement yeah, actually, that? You know we just, maybe yeah, we should have, I think we should use that. The eight yeah. ers yeah, or just straight. No, they're eight fifteen. Yeah. Okay, they're 815. Yeah, John Locke's 815. He doesn't want to be. He'd rather be with the others, but that dude, sorry, buddy. You're 815. You're 815. Uh, the antenna, 10 out of 10, makes an appearance again. Uh, more whispers. Do you see her again? I could see eye to eye again. Is she coming? Bossy, eh, Missy? Oh, no, Missy Payne is uh, is, is on Oh, the no, island. and her leg's broken again. Yeah, and she's just bossing everybody around. Oh, uh, you know what? Actually, I mean, there are some comparisons between Missy and John Locke. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Uh, relax, she's not behind us. Now, that person also gets headshot. Yeah, I think this is probably like a group of like three guys <laughs> being like, we're good, she's yeah, not behind yeah, us, yeah. and they all get picked flap, off. Flap, Uh I know it all. Okay, so that's either Robert Steven. It's the eyes. Stop trying to spoil the ending for shannon uh is she 815 yes established that she is and then the final whisper once again the antenna 10 out of 10 so i think three people must have been affixing that antenna and they all fell off the roof and they all in synchronicity uh gave it a 10 out of 10 yeah uh, either it's like a, you know on yelp and someone accidentally leaves like a review three times and it's the exact same oh one. Yeah, yeah 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 yeah. i think that works too uh so those are the whispers uh in that scene according to to lostpedia uh anything that's like actually uh compelling to you in any of that or is just all fun and games no, I mean, I legitimately, I, I, I'll, I'll double down on my theory that I think 
and I don't know, we'll get some more transcripts of the whispers later, but maybe there is something of like the last thing somebody thought or the last thing somebody said is, you know, what they end up whispering. And that could be something to also drive a person crazy if Rousseau's hearing the same whispers over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, all right. So as obviously Shannon's very spooked by this and we'll, we'll get back into it in a little while. First, uh, everybody's going to leave the, the hatch. We'll listen in on, uh, one of the two conversations that occurs. There's going to be, uh, Locke and Kate are going to talk. Jack and Hurley are going to talk. Let's listen to the Locke and Kate conversation. Why do you want to get down there so bad? Lee, why do I want to get down there so bad? Lee, Jack thinks I'm crazy, doesn't he? Why? Because you want to drop into a hatch that's been locked from the inside by a foot-thick steel door that says quarantine? Well, look at the bright side. Damage is done. Bright side. And if Jack thinks I've lost it, I can't blame him, really. Then again, five hours ago, I was pulled into a hole by what appeared to be a column of black smoke. Did you see it, Kate? Josh, I wanted to pull this scene because it made me realize we talked at the end of season one during the greater good about how there weren't a lot of Saeed lock scenes until that episode. But I realized this episode, there aren't really a lot of lock Kate scenes until this one in particular, mainly because Kate was either seen with Jack or Sawyer off doing her own thing, whereas Locke obviously had his own stuff to do. And I think this might be a dynamic that we should track as well, especially over the course of season two, as Locke sort of goes down his own spiral or down his own path with regards to we obviously know him and Jack are at odds. And so Kate is probably like the closest person to Jack that Locke can communicate with. And to have communicate. Sort of, yeah, I like exactly. That. But to sort of track, you know, how she goes in terms of her skepticism towards Locke, how it sort of waxes and wanes, I think is, is going to be something interesting to chart over the course of this season. Yeah. And I and I also I, I love every time that Kate and the monster are put into the same conversation. Uh, you know, when when Locke asks her about the column of black smoke, uh, what did you think you saw? Uh, I, I you know, she's her destiny really has been tied to the monster from the very first episode of the show. Uh, you know, she's one of the three people that encounters the monster in the jungle. And we get it from her perspective when she's hiding from the monster and she's so afraid of this thing in the jungle and for kate's arc to be um not running away from a monster anymore but like running towards it and actively shooting and killing the thing uh, i think is is a lot more satisfying to me all these years later than maybe it was in the moment so anytime we get to like kind of um be in conversation with that I'm pretty happy about uh, and and Locke bringing that up here and eventually being the face of that thing that he's talking mm. about, uh, I think is a pretty cool thing to have here in season. Yeah. Two. And not to mention the fact that, again, this is like a typical Locke technique, right, of trying to get someone to, to sub subscribe to your faith is not necessarily to instill your own is to sort of turn it back on the person. Right. He did this again with Jack in White Rabbit. He did it a little bit with Boone in Deus Ex Machina. And here he is with Kate of like, you know, her basically asking, why do you want to go down there? And he said, OK, let, let, let me remind you of when we saw the weird ass column of black smoke. Hey, weird things exist on this island. Maybe I'm not too crazy. And I think he sort of is bringing to her this mindset of this is reality that we're living in right now. And the sooner you realize that, the better. I'm in that club. I thought Jack was. It seems like he's not. Boone was. He's dead. I need a new acolyte. I don't know if he's eyeing her 
for that. But I think the the way he approaches certain people with with certain, you know, I wouldn't say manipulations, but I guess tactics, as it were. I will also say bad luck on Locke for being such a grammar Nazi, but that <laughs> badly thing. Yeah, not great. Very Stannis Baratheon of him. <laughs> uh, but I mean, at least in this episode, yeah, I think he's grooming Kate. He's going to tell her later that he was waiting for her. Um, meanwhile, Jack and Hurley are going to have a conversation. Uh, Hurley's going to open up to, to Jack about why he was uh, running around saying, don't blow the thing up. He's going to tell him the story about the numbers. He's going to talk about the fact that he's uh, he was in uh, uh, he was he was institutionalized. He's going to talk about how uh, the Mister Clux was destroyed by a meteor, actually a meteorite. Yeah, which uh, we, that's the only thing that we didn't know, which we'll find out soon. I also like that Hurley has a new nickname for Jack. He calls him Mister Haha. <laughs> Do we want to be referring to Jack as Mister Haha from now I on? I think I think in a sarcastic manner, like when yeah. we when Jack is being extra mean, like he is in this scene to Hurley, we can say, "Oh, here's Mister Haha." Yeah, that's Doctor Haha. Yeah, it's, it's to- like it's like it's like Doctor Shepard and Mister Haha. <laughs> I didn't go to seven years of uh, comedy medical school to be a Mister Haha. Are you uh, staring at your Austin Powers cutout as you're reading that I am, line? I am. I am. I am indeed. Uh, Jack's whole reaction to everything where. Uh, uh, where Hurley is regaling him with the tale of how he uh, interacted with the numbers and why he tried to stop the hatch from blowing up is to basically say, you were in a psych ward? And I don't love Jack Shepard crazy shaming Hurley. Uh, well, I also, I thought like, I, and I think Hurley felt too that as he was doing this, let's remember the last time he opened up, he was rebuffed by Charlie and being like, no, stop job, stop pulling my leg, man. Like, stop joking around when I opened up to you. And he thought he could actually do it again this time. And Jack took it more seriously but it's very clear that he stopped listening after Hurley said he was institutionalized. Yeah, he really, that was the thing. That was the thing. Uh, I think uh, if Jack, Jack is in the flashbacks able to pull off something fairly impressive. So I think he's probably going to move up in the world when we get to the 23 points. But I don't I don't love his bedside manner, as Hurley says. Yeah, your bedside manner sucks, dude. Uh, I think it's fairly it's fair to say. Mm, very. Yeah. Uh, flashback. Sarah's going to wake up. Uh, and we're going to see just how bad Jack's bedside manner is. He's going to talk about how uh, her thoracic lumbar spine has multiple crushed vertebrae. I imagine angel hair like pasta spilling out everywhere. It's like, it's like when you leave pasta out and it gets all crusty. Like yeah, that's what that's what's happened is. to your back. I will uh, also say... Uh, and maybe it's because we only saw... like We've seen, what, like three scenes of Sarah in Do No Harm, and that was on her wedding day. But Julie Bowen is so freaking good yeah she's very good she's very good she's very 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 good but like i mean they put her through the ringer i mean she does this fantastic moment where we see her wake up and you know she asks about what happened to the other guy in the crash and jack has to tell her that he's gone and she's able to make a single tear roll down her and not like heaving sobs you know i know actors have to certainly get into that place sometimes to do that like it's it's silent but it's mournful i it's loss obviously got gets commendations from uh, the emmys it, it sucks that uh, you know not a lot of guest actors and guest actresses really get acknowledged for the emmys for loss because i feel like julie bowen would be a dark horse i just i really admire what she was able to do over the course of this episode considering what place the character of sarah is at this moment i actually think that uh i i really like sarah as a character i'm basically team sarah when it comes to the sarah and jack divorce i think uh like i i feel like i can understand why she's really not feeling the jack thing anymore Her her bedside manner, pretty good. She wakes up from this accident, and the very first thing that she wants to know is what happened to the other guy. That's mm. the mark of a good person. 
Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, also, and she's, we'll she's how- like devastated to find out that this guy's dead. Yeah, I was going to say, well, it'd be interesting uh, if Sarah became a bigger character. I'd be intrigued to take a deeper dive as to, like, how much does that affect her? It's not exactly blood on her hands or on her steering column, but the fact that she inadvertently caused someone else to die. Uh, But I mean, this is also interesting to chart her relationship with Jack as well as he investigates her chart. You know, uh, Sarah talks about not being able to feel anything. Jack really can't either, as is shown by just his terrible, terrible way of broaching the news to Sarah of like, yep, you're probably never going to walk again. Lols, bye. You're never gonna walk again. Yeah, so he's giving her that news, and then Christian Shepard shows up, and he wants to have a word with Jack. Let's listen in. Dr. Shepard, may I have a word, please? So, what'd I do wrong? You did something wrong. You're frowning. My face is always this way. Dad, hey, come on. Let's hear it. You might want to try handing out some hope every once in a while. Even if there's a 99% probability that they're utterly, hopelessly screwed, folks are much more inclined to hear that 1% chance that things are going to be okay. Her spine's crushed. I tell her that everything's going to be okay. That's false hope, Dad. Maybe, maybe. But it's still hope. So I guess we should call Jack Mr. Ha Ha Jr., considering we know where he gets it from. <laughs> Dr. Ha Ha Jr. Uh, uh, that I was love, Dr. Ha Ha Sr. I love starting out this clip how Christian, you know, knocks on the door and says Dr. Shepard, because not only is it professional, obviously, being in front of Sarah, but it's almost a representation of how impersonal their relationship is. Right. Even at this moment that he's regarding his own son as Dr. Shepard. And even the advice he gives him is not like, it's not the heartwarming talk that he gives him poolside during Do No Harm. You know, it still shows that Christian is someone who, even when he's being his quote unquote most fatherly, he's still regarding Jack in an arm's length just because of what he thinks he's only capable of. But I, he's trying, he's trying to give him good advice here, I think. You know, yeah. I, I think like, uh, like even if you're bullshitting them, like still bullshit them so that they feel better. They're in enough pain. Like you don't need to like, uh, just like completely crush them. She's already literally crushed. Uh, you know, the news might not be good. Figure out like a better delivery mechanism for giving her the very bad news. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can imagine that the live together dialogue speech, obviously the speech he's about to do is very much inspired by this 1% idea. You know, I like my hope like I like my milk 1%. Uh-huh. Uh, but I can imagine that the original live together dialogue speech is probably inspired by this mantra too as well. Yeah. Right? This idea that like, even if you personally feel like all is lost, that doesn't mean that you have to instill that onto others. And in fact, you shouldn't, because I feel like the more motivated people are, the more you'll actually be able to work towards a solution, no matter how fortuitous the circumstances may be. All right. So live together, die alone was a long time ago. But here comes Jack with another big speech for the group. And he's coming back just in time because tensions are rising within the group. Uh, Shannon has come back from her jaunt in the jungle uh, and is saying, I saw Walt in the woods. Everyone's like, you're crazy. And so it's like, did the raft blow up? And Charlie's like, no way. The others weren't coming. And Shannon and Charlie are really in a pretty heated conflict about it. And then Jack shows up and he gives everybody the spiel. He's like, okay, so this is what we were trying to do. There was a hatch in the ground. It's about a half a mile away from here. We're going to blow it open. We're going to try and hide inside. But uh, that's not going to work. So that plans out the window. And then Charlie's like, hey, by the way, where's Dr. Arst? And uh, Jack uh, is like, ah, he didn't make it. 
and there are gasps within the group, but only a few. I feel like not a lot of people are mourning uh, the, the 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 departure of one Leslie Arst from from the yeah. You, you actually see a couple of people high fiving in the background. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's Billy and Rodney. Uh, so Jack's gonna be like, "Hey, everybody, calm down. It's gonna be all right. We're gonna be okay. We're gonna stay here. We've got four guns. We're gonna have lookouts. It's gonna be all right." Sun comes up in three hours. We'll all be here to see that happen. Uh, why is everybody going to be watching Sun wake up? <laughs> because they uh, they want to make sure that she's okay, considering her husband. We're all gonna raft. we're all gonna stay here. We're gonna pull an all nighter. Sun's gonna get some sleep. We're all gonna surround her, and, <laughs> and then in the three next- hours she's gonna wake up. And when she wakes up, we're all gonna go ah. And she's going to yeah. freak out. It's going to be really funny. And then the next day, it's Charlie's turn. We're all going to take like pick names out of a hat. Yeah. Who gets to do this? And I, I think that, again, you know, it might be false hope considering how even if Charlie's adamant that the others aren't coming, they still don't know exactly what's out there in the jungle. But I feel like Jack does a good job here. It's it's no live together, die alone. But I feel like the sequel does what it's supposed to do. It brings everybody together. He's adamant about how we're mm. all going to be safe as long as we stay together. Almost he's pro- everybody. He's providing reasonable options. And yeah, it's unfortunately undone a bit. We're in the freaking background. Locke's like, do, 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 disobeying your orders. Get directly contradicting the speech by going off with this big ass cable buy. Uh, yeah, if this was a tweet, you could imagine that I have the clap emoji in between every word. Do not tell me what I can and cannot do is what Locke is basically yeah. saying to Jack here. Uh, you know, he is uh, he's going to go down the hatch. He's like, I I get it. Makes sense. Stay here. Uh, are the you know, is it is, is it smart to go to the hatch? Probably not. It's probably safer to be here and wait for the morning and see if the others show up. Uh, it's probably smarter to wait to see if the brave folks on the raft are gonna are gonna get us rescued. But I'm tired of waiting, so he cheeses it. He <laughs> well, it. listen, it's goodbye, Michelangelo. Screw you! I'm not waiting anymore for this. Yeah, so he's gonna go down the hatch. We go to commercial, and when we come back, Jack is stewing about Locke's decision, and Kate comes to him and says, "Like that was a good speech. Uh, that's not really your thing. You're not really a glass half full kind of guy." I love Jack's response. There's a glass. Yeah, so uh, I guess there's what? There's glass funny. half full, there's glass empty, and there's like what? Glass skeptics? Glass there's, non-believers? There, glass deniers? Just, like I don't use glass. I'm a styrofoam cup kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. That's all we can have in the hospital because yeah. we're on the run all the time. Yeah, Dr. No, I drink out of I drink out of a cup made out of hardened spaghetti. Yes, yeah. I drink out of a, a, a hollow, I have just a big sheet of lasagna. I just lap <laughs> up the water. That's how I do it. Uh, and so she's giving him the pump up speech because she's about to hit him with something that he's not going to want to hear. And that something is, so look, I'm going after Locke. I'm going down the hatch as well. Uh, I Like, I know why you can't go. I get it. But if something happens to him, if he falls, if he breaks his neck, live together, die alone. And Jack's like, oh, man, I did say that, didn't I? So... How much of this do you think is Kate legitimately, you know, giving the reason that she was going to go to Jack, that she wanted to make sure that Locke doesn't fall and break something? And how much is it that you think she's legitimately curious as to what's down there and her adventurous spirit wants her to go down there? I think there's a piece of that. But I but I also think, um, yeah, I think I I don't know. I actually don't have a good answer for that. Uh, What's your instinct? I I feel like I personally feel like it's more the latter than the former. Because I think we've seen many times in the past that Kate is completely capable of BSing in Jack's face. And I, I don't want to, you know, use this to besmirch Kate and that she's not sincere in really going to Jack and asking how he is. 
But I really do think that, you know, there's, there's a reason why she does not uh, deny Locke the opportunity to send her down there first. I think she is someone who is always looking for a new opportunity. Most of the time, it's an opportunity that will lead to her own safety. But I think in this case, she is genuinely mystified by what might be down there and wants to explore it. And I think especially after her talk with Locke, she might be a bit more on his side as in terms of the weirdness of the island, but she doesn't want to admit that to Jack's face. Yeah. But I also think that like she has seen the utility in Locke. I don't think she's been quite as thumbs down on Locke as, as Jack has been right now. And I think also when Jack has said, like, do you have my back? Because if you don't, we're going to have a Locke problem. Maybe in her mind, she's like, Locke is going to be the first person down the hatch and he's going to be the first person down the hatch by himself unless somebody goes out there with him. Uh I trust nobody more than I trust myself. Uh, if somebody is going to keep an eye on the lock problem, I'll be the one who does it. Um, so it makes a lot of sense from that perspective, too, why Kate's going to go after Locke. But I also genuinely believe like she doesn't want the guy to die. Yeah, I could see that as well. I think I wouldn't say that, you know, he's top of her MySpace uh, eight person friend list. But I think she would be legitimately concerned if Locke ends up dying down there for one reason or another, because that also means, you know, if if Locke died down there and that's Locke, as you said, the man of 400 knives and hunting skills out of the wazoo. What does that say about what's down there and what that can mean for when it comes out of the hatch? Right. Uh, flashback time. And here here he is. Worst character of the episode by far. It is a fiance douche. It's Kevin. Yes. It's Sarah's fiance before she's engaged and eventually married to to Jack. My, my notes call him a metrosexual asshat. Metrosexual asshat. Indeed. He's terrible. He's awful. He's, uh, but he's I will say the actor, which is the lovely Anson Mount, who yes. most recently created like a legitimately instant fan favorite Star Trek character and Captain Pike during Star Trek Discovery. You hate to see him in this regard, but he does play smarmy very well. And while he's very churlish as Captain Picard, it does not work here as Kevin, the metrosexual douchey fiance asshat. He's awful as Captain Pike. Uh, he's all he's he's awesome as Captain Pike. Uh, he's awful as fiance douche. Uh, all that he cares about is like, all right, Jax, just tell me something. Like, am I still going to be able to bone out with yeah, my wife? Yeah, let, let me just tell me something, Doc. Uh, do the uh, holes still work? Yeah, let's get let's get down to brass tacks. Yeah, let, let's get down to business here. Do I have to watch her dookie or what, man? Oh, God, yeah, like, do I have to clean the dookie? And it's like, come on, dude. <laughs> What is your deal, man? That's, are, that's the first question you ask. Are the are these important questions to have answers to? Of course, of course, for a loving relationship, of course. Uh, are they the first two <laughs> questions? Are they the top two on the leaderboard? Are we a going to be able to continue boning, or b am I going to have to take her to the bathroom? That's one and two. I mean, they're, they deal with one and two, particularly that second question. Uh, I, and it makes you... Man, I don't, I don't know why it's... The, <laughs> I don't know why they both deal with one and two. <laughs> uh, listen, we don't know their life. Yikes. But, uh, but I mean, it also it makes you... I, I want to say, I don't want to judge Sarah nor anybody else for the choices they make in their mate. Maybe Kevin is lovely to Sarah, but like, doesn't it make you kind of question, like, what does she see in this guy? Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, it's it's very wedding singer, right? Like this is Glenn Gulia. Yeah, I was gonna say. So I mean, actually, no. If his name was like Kevin Guerra, right? So he could be, she could be Sarah Guerra when she gets married. Yeah, and I mean, like the 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 Billy the Adam Sandler connection is strong as uh, she was uh, Virginia Bennett once upon a time. Yeah, and I would say that Jack sort of has the mullet that Adam Sandler had in, in Wedding Singer. Sometimes he's he does kind of have in this uh, in this flashback he does have that uh that that hair. Uh, and sometimes has that happy Gilmore temper as well. And we know he loves golf. Yeah, exactly. So now it's I think Jack is just really a corroboration of all the Adam Sandler characters in one is essentially what we're saying. I believe it's Dr. Ha Ha Gilmore. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so uh, fiance douche sucks that he's going to get destroyed in the uh, LVP category. I'm pretty sure this week uh, Jack is going to leave that conversation and he's going to go into the OR. He's going to go to the operating room to perform surgery on Sarah uh, and uh, they're going to have a quick chat before everything goes down. Let's take a listen. Come here. Come here. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Julie freaking Bowen. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. And Jack is Jack is so intense. I'm yeah. Well, I'm considering that he starts the scene by literally like saloon door style, pushing open the doors to the R. I guess you would assume that this happens right after the conversation with Kevin and he is brimming with anger, which is probably not the best mood to go into surgery with. Yeah. But it's also just very, like, intense to say, I'm going to fix you to an unconscious person. Uh, well, like just, he said, he's very intense. Yeah, and he has said that in the past. Like, it's very similar to what he said to Boone. I uh, also, well, speaking of what he said to Boone, I love that Sarah lets him off the hook. Yeah. Right? It's actually a very similar scene where, like, she calls Jack over and she's like, it's okay. I know what you, what, the promise that you made and what you're trying to do. I know it's not going to work. In this case, it did, but damn, the maturity it must take from, like, just as a person to, like, be resigned to that, but also somehow confident in it to, like, instill that in your doctor is such an interesting character moment. I know I would not have reacted the same way, but, like, the mentality that Sarah walks into this, granted the fact that she's also probably doped up beyond belief, it's just, it's a really well-done scene. I mean, I'll admit... In this episode, I ship Jack and Sarah. I think oh, Matthew, for sure, for sure. Matthew Fox and Julie Bowen have such a damn good dynamic. Very good chemistry. Very yeah, especially. Chemistry. And we'll talk about the next scene, which I think is absolutely beautiful. But you even see it in these scenes where like they just work so well off of one another. Uh, back at the hatch, Locke is binding the cable together. He's getting ready. Uh, and Kate shows up. She thought that he'd be there by then. Uh, and Locke says, oh, well, I was waiting for you. And there's that big old Johnny Locke grin. 
Uh, so yeah, that conversation in the jungle paid off. He got Kate to come to the hatch. She knew she was going to be here. She knew she was curious. And speaking of what you first. So Kate Austin, uh, the, the front runner for her MVP status all throughout season one until the very end is going to be the first 815 down the hatch. So. It's interesting because we talked about Locke's independence before. He wasn't really listening to Hurley. He is adamant about going down the hatch. From that perspective, it's interesting that he sends Kate down first. I mean, you wonder if it really is, you know, as he says, it's more of a logistical thing that she is lighter and that makes it easier for him to control the rope lowering her down than vice versa. Otherwise, you could think that Locke, who at this point, post Deus Ex Machina, firmly believes that the island is on his side and is essentially protecting him as long as he believes in it, wouldn't he go down there first because he feels no matter what's down there, he almost has like a bulletproof vest on from the island? Yeah, but I mean, Kate does have that funny line of like, maybe you just want to see me get eaten. He's like, yeah, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, uh, so there, there may be that element in play, uh, you know, like Boone, you go into the plane. <laughs> Kate, you go down the hatch. Uh, you know, you guys do the, the, the dummy testing. You guys are the crash test dummies. Um, there might be that piece of it. And like, maybe he feels uh, there's also like the piece where like maybe he genuinely does feel that the best chance of getting down there and accomplishing whatever comes next is like, I don't have to be the first person with my feet on the moon. Mm. I can be Buzz. I, I was going to say, yeah, I can be the, the John Glenn. You know, like I don't need to be first touchdown. That's fine. I'm OK with that. Um, so it could, it could be something like that. But, uh, if that's the case, and if it's like an ego free thing, you would give points to that. But where Locke loses me is Kate goes down first. She's not very excited about it. She wants to be, uh, she wants to feel more comfortable with the process. She wants a safe word. Locke says, safe word is stop. So he's not even right. workshopping. And, we, and, we, and we know that that means Locke does not get that adventurous in the bedroom. Right. No, definitely not. Uh, so he's going to lower her down. She's like, all right, I guess it's stop is the safe word. And then she goes and then there's like the the big, uh, you know, fake drama of the of the branch breaking, which is just, you know, that's probably the worst part of the episode for me. Well, it's that's just, and I remember actually one of the, like the big promo leading into season two was like this minute when Locke is lowering Kate down. That's when we hear. I don't know if it's Evangeline Lily scream or if it's like a fake scream, but it sounds very canned. But when the branch breaks and she slides down, it turns out to be, like you said, a little bit of a false al alarm, false hope, if you will. Because it just it's turns the, out. It's the, it's the raft and the rudder again, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, like, it's, oh, like a very temporary danger. And now it's been fixed before the real danger happens. Yeah, we got 42 minutes of episode that we need to accommodate. So we got to. Uh, Kate's got to fall a little bit. Uh, but once she falls and once Locke establishes that she's okay and she's trying to like continue like talking, he just keeps lowering. Yep. Yep. And again, that just shows like, okay, yeah, you thought you were actually getting like a, this is a two way street. No, no, no. no, no. This is a one way street when you're working with Locke. You're, you're an accessory to him right He's now. He's desperate. He's desperate. It's a stinky cologne, John. Uh, so Kate is getting very scared and it's the, it's the scene we heard at the top of the podcast. She yeah, goes, she, it's she so, oh, go ahead. She just pulls back the, the, the one, two, three, four, five from the Jack days. She's like, that was a good tactic. It worked for me before. Maybe it'll work again here. But, uh, Desmond only knows four, eight, 15, 16, 23, 42. He doesn't know that he has to wait for her to complete the countdown. So he shows up a little early. Light Blair is on. 
Kate shoots uh, before the light comes on. Kate says, I think something's down. And then the big light goes on and Kate goes poof. And like the logistics are wonky. How exactly does that work? Why does she not continue making noise? Um, I don't really care. It's very evocative and cool. No, it's so well done. That's why I wanted to pick it for the for the intro is like it's super even when before the uh, even before the spotlight happens, when she's just lower down there and you see like the flickering lights, you know, it's very this whole going down the hatch reminds me of something out of like Silent Hill uh, or, you know, The Last of Us. Just this idea of like the terror that lurks in the unknown and then just to have her succinctly get cut off by the light. Like you said, the logistics behind it don't make much sense unless she's just completely paralyzed by this light that it renders her completely speechless but it's so well done in us really making because remember we end this episode not knowing where the hell kate is except knowing that she's quote-unquote fine so for all we know she could have gotten taken by something and so it really just does evoke this brilliantly stark image and especially because let's remember the light was such an inspiration to John Locke, and now it's taking a real nefarious turn that it's something that took something away from him. Right, the light right. has turned on him. Right, right. And I mean, it's it's great too, because not only are we not going to know what happened to Kate for the rest of the episode, but very quickly from here, we're not going to know what happened to Locke either. We're going to go back to Jack and he's going to decide that because uh, he's in love with Kate. Like, we're probably, you know, the, the logical question is like, why, why is Jack going down? Uh, why does he choose to go to the hatch? It's not because he's curious. It's not because he needs to know what's down there. Uh, it's because he loves Kate and yep. he does not trust Locke and he does not trust Kate enough to handle herself around Locke. Uh, and so he's worried and he's going to go and see what he could do. And when he shows up at the hatch, everybody's gone. There's no sign of anybody. So he does the smart thing, by the way. And he like puts like, you know, cloth around his hands before right, he starts but, belaying himself down. But he also does a stupid thing and just drops the torch down the shaft, which like best case scenario, they're down there and you just hit them with a the torch. Yeah, you set them on fire. Uh, yeah, when yeah, Locke's maybe, like, hey, that was my idea. Maybe you drop like a uh, like a, a medium to lightweight stone down mm. the hatch. And so, like, the worst thing that happens is, like, it, uh, I mean, I guess the worst thing that would happen there is if it's a really deep shaft, uh, you drop it and enough velocity happens and the medium to light stone becomes like a bullet. Well, I would say, yeah, if this is a shaft, the length of the Empire State Building, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And so maybe it ends up being, uh, Kate and, and Locke were the, with the whispers before somebody's behind us. Yeah. And then their whispers, wait, what's that up there? Yeah. Plop done blunt uh, rock 10 out of 10 all right so jack's gonna go down the hatch third person down the hatch uh after kate and the unseen john Locke goes down the hatch we go to a flashback jack's gonna do the stadium race and run up the rup and run up what's it called it's like the the tour de, the tour de stade tour de stade yeah could you and do actually a, a tour de stade mike I mean, no. Was it's, the Exodus podcast our tour de stade of podcasting? I mean, I guess I think a tour de stade podcast would be like if we analyze an episode and we talked about literally every single detail of every single episode. Because the, mm. the tour de stade is that you're supposed to run every single step in a stadium. And I think actually if you go to the tour de stade Wikipedia I think page, down the hatch is a tour de stade of podcasts. I think. Like, I, yeah, uh, that's the, probably comparable. The entire endeavor is uh, pretty comprehensive. And if you go to the Tortoisade Wikipedia page, a good quarter of it is the reference to Man of Science, Man of Faith. Ah, and that's because really? the Tortoisade Wikipedia oh. page is four lines long. That's very funny. Very, very funny indeed. Uh, so the Tortoisade is happening and Jack is running and he's running and then somebody shows up. and He's got his hair pulled back and he's running faster than Jack. 
And Jack does not like that. He doesn't like that somebody is running faster than him. So he starts running faster. And then the other guy starts running faster. And Jack runs even faster. And he twists his ankle and he falls down. And then this long piece of dialogue occurs. Oh, oh, damn it. You all right, brother? Uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Take it easy. Keep the weight off. Let me look. Damn. Does this hurt? You haven't sprained it then? I don't fancy your chances of catching up with me tonight, though. I wasn't trying to catch up. No, I guess you went. What do you know about sprains, anyway? I was almost a doctor once. <laughs> Small world. You're a doctor, then? So what's your excuse? Excuse? For running like the devil's chasing you. My excuse? I'm training. Training for what? For a race around the world. Impressive, I know. <laughs> so your excuse may be good, brother. Just trying to work a few things out. Uh, I go, right? Patient. Oh, I go patient. What's her name? Her name's Sarah. What'd you do to her then? Do to her. You must have done something worthy of this self-flagellation. I told her. I made a promise I couldn't keep. I told her I'd fix her and couldn't. Failed. Well, right. Just one thing. What if you did fix her? I didn't. Well, what if you did? You don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't, why not? Because with her situation, that would be a miracle brother uh, and you don't believe in miracles <laughs> right well then you know, I'm going to give you some advice anyway you have to lift it up lift it up your ankle you gotta keep it elevated. It's been nice chatting. Jack. Jack. I'm Desmond. Well, good luck, brother. See you in another life, yeah? Iconic. He's here. He's, He's here. Made it. It's Desmond. Desmond. It was so cool that Jack and Shrek just had that very intense conversation. Yeah, absolutely. But then Desmond had to go run back to his swamp. That's a, ah, that's a donkey, is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. There's so much to say about this. First, 
Hey Henry and Cusick, like official hey. face, face <laughs> hey, debut. Yeah. Uh, my, I believe he goes by Ian. I think he likes Ian. Is well, uh, in my my point of view, maybe the most attractive guy to be wow. on Lost. He's a looker, and he just has a sexy accent to boot. Uh, I and I to I'm, boot La Raza. Exactly, and I'm so. I'm so happy to see him in so many ways. Again, we're only going to see him for like another episode and then two episodes at the end. But what an introduction. I mean, it's interesting in so many ways. Let's just look at it from Desmond's perspective. Now that we know his story chronologically, because let's remember, we'll find this out in the season two finale. This scene takes place literally right after Desmond, awful running polo shirt and all, uh, talks with Penny about him getting invested in this race and she basically says, you know, you're doing this out of cowardice. He feels like even though she's apparently getting married, he wants to win her back and, you know, get back in her good graces and, you know, earn his own place in the world. And so if you're looking at it of, OK, why is this random guy talking to Jack about miracles? I think it makes a lot more sense when you fill in his personal history of I think Desmond right now feels like he needs a miracle to be able to be with the woman that he has pined after for so long. And so it would only make sense why he's trying to instill that positivity and optimism in somebody else, even if it seems like all reality is working against you. I'm just sitting here listening to you talk about Desmond David Hume with the biggest smile on my face. We're talking about Desmond. Uh, we're going to have we're going we're gonna to have like uh, like two years of Desmond to talk about. What a lovely, what a lovely thing. This is awesome. It's part of the vernacular now. It's absolutely great. You know what else I really like in the conversation is uh, when he says, you're going to have to lift it up. Yep. Uh, And so Jack's going to have to lift his foot. He's talking about his foot. But in the end, Jack and Desmond are going to have to team up together to uncork the island. Literally, you're going to have to lift the cork. Desmond's going to be the first person to have to do it. And then Jack is going to have to carry the ball across the finish line uh, and and recork the thing. He's going to have to lift the cork to put it back in the hole. Uh, The thumb in the cork. Mike, uh, <laughs> well, I don't that, know. this is a weird image now. Uh, I know. As the cork, maybe. I don't want to talk about it. I don't uh, talk but yeah, about it's I, and I think it's so interesting in that you know, again, watching this at first glance, you think like, okay, here's this random, almost guardian angel character swooping in to randomly talk to Jack, and you don't realize again. We'll find this out through live together, die alone, but just how much Jack and Desmond will eventually need one another by the end of all this, just through everything that happens. Like you said, it's a partnered effort, and so. See you in another life is not only a fun little wink and a nod and also an infamous line from the show. It also is something that alludes to the fact that these two are going to have their fates tied together. Even though, again, Desmond's about to leave, he's going to get drawn back to the island for many, many reasons. But you can imagine one of them is, you know, if Jacob feels like the end is going to involve Jack in some sort of way, maybe Desmond's going to, to play a part of it. Also, if you're looking at it from a thematic perspective with the whole lifted up, it's also obviously about his sense of faith as well that you know his own sense of what could happen is as broken and swollen as his ankle and he can't do anything to alleviate it unless he elevates it first otherwise he's working at it from an angle that's not going to work best for his healing 
Uh, I remember reading interviews back in the day of Lindelof and Cuse talking about Desmond becoming a more important character on Lost after season two. And I think like in the run up to season three, once it was known that Henry and Cusick was returning as a series regular for season three. Uh, and then like really singing his praises for the fact that the, the, the season finale for season two is a Desmond flashback. And this is a guy that you spent three episodes with up until this point. Uh, not a lot of time. And suddenly you're asking you're you're foisting so much dramatic weight upon this actor and the way in which he delivers is just so exceptional in live together die alone and i i don't remember the exact phrasing but i think that they talked about it as like you know jack is the quarterback uh of the characters on lost and here here you're asking like qb2 to come in like to to play quarterback you're having desmond do that and i think that there's something to that with the desmond and and jack dynamic insofar as they don't really have too much of one right. um or at least like it's not it's not heavily emphasized they're often ships in the night um because i think that they are both kind of like leaders of their own journeys that are that are not in conflict with one another and in fact are in concert with one another but are but are working are working towards common common goals but not together yeah uh, it, it's like you know they're sort of off on their own separate journeys but they're leading in the same direction like season three while jack's off you know uh you know on the hydra desmond's gonna be the one that's really helping to try to work to prevent charlie's doom right uh, and so it seems like they're they're working towards a common goal even in season four jack is going to be you know working with the freighters desmond's gonna have his affiliation with that but obviously he has his own little direction to go and they're gonna make their way off the island together uh but even when they're working together to get back onto the island it seems like they're there for separate reasons so yeah it often seems like they're they're in the same boat but they're often you know using it for different reasons desmond is an accelerator you know like that is really his his big role on the show he's often cited as people's like favorite character and i i think that that has a lot to do with just like the 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 great performance certainly but the power of the romance story and that this is like one of the only characters that gets uh that that really gets a huge happily ever after <laughs> certainly the fact that like you know maybe in the in the very grand scheme of things like the 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 show doesn't end with an alive desmond reunited with an alive penny but you can infer that that's what's going to happen for him uh once he wakes up from everything that happens in the finale um that he's one of those characters that gets like a pretty pure good ending and has such a romantic journey uh there's so many people who have named like their pets desmond and penny uh you know based on these characters um but i i think i think even saying all that i i I think that desmond never rises above being like the lead character of a side story or at best being an accelerator for the main story um he he is the quarterback that that you know advances the ball just enough uh to you know let the the let qb1 rest up i don't know if that's how it works in football guys (laughs) obviously i have no idea uh but like he's he's the guy that gets the ball moving to a certain place and then jack picks it up and carries it across the finish line uh and i think that uh he's he's exceptional in that way um that being said i do expect that a lot of the stuff that desmond accomplishes in the the long haul of lost is stuff that maybe would have gone to like walt um mm, if, if yeah i do had- i do I, yeah, I do wonder specifically if the choices they make for season three with desmond could have been at least manifested a bit onto Walt. Like, I think there could have been a universe where Desmond dies in the season two finale when he turns that failsafe key. But he uh, just, like, delivers. You know, Henry and Cusick is so good, and people respond to it so well. And, and you know, not just the fans, but the, the writers, I'm sure, are like, oh, right. my 
God. Well, season two really is a season of that, isn't it? Of characters that were initially short-lived and ends up really endearing themselves to the creator so they become a bigger part of the story. You know, I think that it's just exactly like it's going to be a very similar deal with Michael Emerson. So uh, I, I think that that's a piece of it. But if like you're mad about the fact that Walt has less of a role on Lost, uh, I do think you could probably throw some blame onto the existence of Desmond as a as a major character moving beyond season two which is one of the reasons why i'm not that mad about it because desmond's great i'm very happy with what we get with Desmond, and it's such a weird introduction but desmond to your point is such a weird character and that being said i i like how lost uses him because i don't feel like and we see this with some characters that like sometimes certain characters don't work well as main characters in pieces of pop culture as much as you make want to make an ensemble show sometimes putting people at the forefront are characters that are better as supporting players and to your point desmond is Kind of that. And that's what makes The Constant such a fun, special episode is because it almost feels completely standalone from the rest of Lost. That Desmond is on his own journey, completely separate from anything else anyone experiences in the show, with maybe the exception of Daniel Faraday, who maybe understands what's going on. Whereas if there was more stuff that focused around him, it would have felt less special. And maybe that would have contributed to like the lessened impact of such a monumental episode of television all right we'll have a lot more desmond to talk about next week uh all right we go down the hatch with jack and the sequence is just super eerie uh i know we're going to talk more about like the design of the of the swan station in the other section so let's not spend too much time on it here uh i think we can we can kind of yada yada through it other than like it's very it, it the sequence takes its time it's it's slow mm-hmm. it's building suspense up you're like what is with the mural what's yeah. that all about what are these stinky ass shoes doing here? <laughs> Is that what's Christian with, Shepherd back again with more shoes? What's with the buckets of cement that are just cemented? Why is the key moving towards the thing? And then the light blasts on and the Mama Cass blasts on. And Jack's now face to face with a computer and, and, and a giant geodesic dome. And what is going down here? Uh, and watching the scene again, knowing what you know about what comes up in the next couple of episodes you can hear kate at one point screaming Mm. from the ventilation shaft you hear her saying jack jack as he's approaching the computer but just huge huge credit to matthew fox for really selling um how bewildering it must have been to be jack shepherd in that moment haven't seen a lick of uh you know civilization in over a month you've been crashed on this island uh and now you're like in an underground uh bunker with a computer and there is that is that mama Cass? Yeah. like i mean like i just think like how disoriented he must feel and i think that uh i think that uh mr haha or dr haha really really sells it quite well and i love the transition and we'll talk about the design elements but just the pure transition from the cave walls to the metal of the hatch is like yeah, a great, great representation of seasons one to two right yeah. this idea that we're coming from this naturalistic environment to spending a lot of our time in this metallic pur- pur- purgatory as it were and that's going to change a lot of the design and also change a lot of the the way we look at the show and i think that's just like a great design transition but yeah i mean it could make the case for like matthew fox could could do pretty well in a horror movie you know of the guys sort of like going through these murky environments again and really called back to like the last of us for me or resident evil i was expecting pyramid head to pop out and start accosting jack but alas he's fine for now uh just singing along to some mama Cass and enjoying the lighting but there goes John Locke. He shows up. I wouldn't do that as Jack's about to touch the computer and Jack turns around. He points his gun at Locke. He wants to know where Kate is. So he's like very deliberately pointing a firearm at John Locke. At this right. Point. Well, well, Jack. So John is also very like casual 
with this. So maybe Jack feels like he might have done something with her. I mean, I can imagine that's probably his first thought, right? Considering just how Locke seems to be almost at home uh, to the point where we find out that those are his shoes that he took off. Maybe yeah. Jack feels like he really resides down here. And so he immediately wants to turn him. I also love we uh, make your own kind of music is such an interesting song. But I love that the lyric, the loneliest kind of lonely is uh, really pervasive over Jack exploring the hatch, considering just how alone he is, even though, to your point, there's people all around him. He just doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize it, and Locke isn't alone. There's another... John Locke has two guns on him (laughs) in this moment as somebody uh, pokes around the corner with a gun on Locke. We know who that is. That's Desmond. We go to commercial. When we come back, final flashback of the episode, penultimate scene of the episode. Uh, I know you pulled the sound on this, but to set it up, it's uh, Jack and Sarah in the hospital room. We're going to find out how the operation went. Am I alive? Yeah. Yeah, you're alive. Smell. Well, thank you. Wow, you really smell. Yeah, I uh, went for a run. You smell like you ran far. Well, I showered. I mean, I guess I just didn't cool. I I wanted to get back down here and check on you. It was uh, a Dodd. What? It's when you run all the steps in every section of a stadium, up and down. Why would you do that? I'm, I'm intense. Did you finish? No, I, I hurt my ankle. That sucks for you. Kevin here, my fiance. I didn't see him. Sure, I'll be back. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Could it tell me how it went? Sarah, the the damage to your back was extensive. I did everything that I could, but your spinal column, I just... I couldn't repair it. You're going to be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of your life. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Sarah. You're yanking my chain, right? Yes. 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 
it's so nice. It's such a good scene. Uh, I've, I've yeah, they te- really have great chemistry. They have, uh, they have such that, good chemistry. I'm, I'm, good. I'm tearing up just listening to it because that last snippet, especially with the two of them in such tearful ecstasy as, as you know, they keep exchanging like, and this, yes, and this, yes. It's both of them sort of coming into this like joyful incredulity that this actually happened. And, you know, it's interesting to think of like, oh, why weird that Jack ended up wearing, marrying one of his patients. But you see in this moment that this is an experience that bonded them for life. Yeah, of course. Well, no, ma- <laughs> well, no I mean, no matter what, look, like yeah, they're, sure, sure, they're sure. still, I mean, she's still going to be there when he comes back, you know, from the, from Oceanic Six, you know? Like, yeah, but you know, that's because she's still the emergency contact. Right. But I think the fact of the matter is they're still part of each other's lives. And I think that's because this is such a momentous part of not only Sarah's life, but Jack's life, it's so interesting watching Matthew Fox's performance, especially in the first part of this scene, when he has to tell her that she's never going to walk again. And he is just wrecked at this point emotionally. And I guess this would be when Christian leans in and points at him and says, I told you, you don't have what it takes, because uh, this is exactly what Christian was warning about. Right. Jack put his faith, his emotional stakes into this only for it to not come true. And then when it ends up happening, it's just it's absolute ecstasy from both of them. I think the music is stunning. Jim Fells, uh, we'll maybe talk about this later when we plug his video, but there is so much musical stuff that comes out of this episode. But this scene debuts a love theme, which is so important to the show. It's mostly used in the aforementioned Desmond Penny stuff, but it's also used in I Do with Kate and Nathan Fillion. Uh, when Sawyer kisses Kate before jumping out of the helicopter, this theme plays. It also plays in another hospital and another timeline in the end when Locke wakes up after his surgery. So it's a different type of love theme. But I love that this is where the motif pops up because, yes, it will not be a happy ending for Jack and Sarah. But damn, if this is not an important scene for these two characters. And I just think it's so well done. Hundo, absolutely agreed. Uh, And I think one of the reasons that it's important is... uh, Jack is experiencing a miracle here. It's miraculous that Sarah is going to be able to walk. The fact that the surgery worked uh, when he thought that it did not. Um, And why does he lose it? You know what I mean? Like, why does he lose the feeling? He experiences a miracle. Why did he lose that love and feeling? why Why can he not buy into John Locke's stuff, what he's peddling on the island? And I think a big piece of it is this is not going to work out. Yeah. You know, like Jack and Sarah are not going to work out. Uh, Jack and Sarah are not end game material. You know, like I think uh, the fact that the relationship is going to end the way that it does, that it's going to end in a way that remains mysterious to Jack, where he's never going to get a great answer as to why she's leaving him or who. Right. He doesn't know who the who the guy is. Uh, It's going to drive him crazy. Uh, People rightfully dump all over stranger in a strange land that's fine but one of the things that it's aiming for and i appreciate about the aim is to establish that at some point post sarah like jack is just like he needs to go soul searching he needs to find himself he needs to find a miracle again and he just like is not able to like ever find that feeling again um so i think to have that episode uh to have that moment in this episode and then have him face to face with with Desmond by the end of it, uh, which we'll we'll hear you know basically now. Uh, feel free to get ready to cue it up. I think is 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 really important in terms of 
juxtaposing why Jack has been acting the way that he's been acting on the island versus what his life was like once upon a time. How did that fairy tale end for him? Because obviously it ended and it's turned him into sort of this, uh, you know, the quote unquote Mr. Ha Ha that Hurley is poking fun at. And it's, and it's um, so interesting because this is one of the only flashbacks I can remember that like doesn't directly emotionally coincide with the character on the island. Right. I feel like a thing from the first season was like, OK, we could understand why Sawyer acts this way because of watching Confidence Man or watching Outlaws. We obviously know why Kate acts the way she does because of her flashbacks. We even see all the hardships that John Locke has endured. This is one of those first flashbacks where you're like, wow, that was a surprisingly happy ending for Jack. How is it going to go wrong? And I feel like if you're trying to set up the idea of future flashbacks, that's a good way to do it. Like you said, the way they fill in those blanks might not be the best, but I appreciate that they're at least setting up for this idea of future flashbacks by providing some question marks in the, between these certain moments. Well, so I have a response to that, but let's listen to the final scene of the episode first, because I think that's instructive to have. Move, and I kill him. Put the gun down. Where's Kate? Jack, is okay. I said drop it! Where's Kate? He's fine, just put down... I'm not putting down anything! Do you want him to die? Put it down! Is this what you were talking about, Locke? Is this your destiny? All roads lead here. Jack, calm down. Lower your gun, or I'll blow his damned head off, brother! So iconic ending, obviously. Do you, uh, uh, do you think Jack forgot Desmond's name and that's no. why he didn't name? No, no, I don't. I don't think so at all. And in fact, quite the opposite. And that's my point is Jack is going to establish by the end of orientation. He's going to, you know, he's going to run off in pursuit of Desmond. They're going to have their confrontation where it's then that Desmond's like, oh, you're the stadium guy. But Jack has known it the entire time. Uh, that's why he has this huge reaction at the end of the episode. Uh, and when he comes back after talking to Desmond, he's going to he's going to remember the numbers exactly. He's going to remember the sequence. Hurley's going to try and get away with Locke putting in the wrong number. Locke's going to try and put in 32 instead of 42 and Hurley's going to let that ride but jack shows up in the nick of time to correct him and say it's 42 desmond offhandedly tells jack the sequence of numbers at the end of orientation he says like all right you gotta you gotta remember the code right so it's 418 it's 418 16 23 42 and you gotta push execute and he just like keeps going on and then jack and desmond have that really big explosive uh, uh emotional confrontation and that's it that's the only time that desmond recites the numbers and jack is going to return and he's going to remember those numbers jack is that uh, Jack is an incredibly intelligent person. Mm -hmm. He has a phenomenal mind. He does not forget stuff. In fact, that's probably one of his biggest burdens is he he has trouble letting things go. Exactly. You know, it's his superpower, but it's also his curse. Uh, so so I, I bring all of that up to establish that why this this ending for Jack in the present actually does map on to the way that the story ends for him in the past 
is two miracles occur for Jack in this episode. Um, Sarah's going to be able to walk again, and he's going to have this beautiful emotional reaction to that. And Jack has been so resistant to the idea that Locke might be right, that coming down to the hatch is our destiny, that when he gets down there and finds himself confronted with a very pivotal person in that memory of the miracle he experienced once upon a time... How can you do anything but recognize the fact that this is either like the most incredible coincidence ever or something bigger is happening here? Um, but in this context, rather than it being a miracle to celebrate, it's sort of a miracle to be horrified by, at least in Jack's current headspace. So I actually think like the the events of how the stories end for Jack in this episode, the parallel stories are relatively similar. They're just very tonally different. Right, that's the thing, uh, is that I do agree that I think this is a different kind of miracle. And I mean, Locke has been making the argument to Jack, right, all this entire season, that yes, miracles have been happening, you just haven't opened your eyes to it. They've been clouded by this idea this has to be steeped in reality. But this might be something that breaks it. You know, this idea that somebody from his past, who again, let's remember, Jack has not seen anyone from his past before on the island. Let's also remember that Sawyer told him a couple days ago, hey, just so you know, I ran into your dad. Could it be that maybe Jack's sense of science is starting to wane and he's realizing, oh, wow, now there are two people, or I guess one person who I directly related with and one person who happened to interact with my dad happened to both be on this island with me. That's no coincidence. And I wonder if that's going to lead into, like you said, an orientation when he's able to adamantly, you know, pursue putting the numbers in. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, but it's it's a great episode, man. It's a very scary episode. It's also a beautiful episode with the Sarah stuff that we just covered. Um, and then it's a very exciting ending uh, where not only not only are we now like civilization in the wild are starting to collide once again. And we still we leave this episode with so many questions about what's going on with the hatch and what is this place. Um, but now to also know. And we've already like seen instances of this on the show. Just they've, they've been lighter is like when like Sawyer's in the background of the police station in Boone's flashback, like there's been intersection uh, or Sawyer, you know, going and having a drink with Christian Shepard. That's fairly major. But now the, the key figure at the heart of the key mystery of the show up to this point is an important person from Jack's past. What's up with all these quinky dinks? Like it just leaves you like we have an, a new question on top of still like a, an answer that doesn't fully fulfill the question we had coming into the episode. But your your curiosity is peaked uh, going into into the second week of season two, which is uh, obviously a little bit of a clunker. And we'll talk about that next week. But I think man of science, man of faith. Uh, as a whole as this episode uh, just really 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 fun to revisit and just a, a really uh, delightfully constructed episode yeah hell of a season opener in my opinion i know that you and i were talking offline about how the first three episodes were sort of packaged or sh sh are basically one big separated like three-hour block they kind of yeah i mean because like we, we're gonna we're gonna see the events of going into the hatch from Locke's perspective next week and then like jack and Locke's perspectives are kind of merged in in episode three what you and i were talking about like is there a universe where this first movement of season two is maybe more celebrated and doesn't feel like it drags on quite as much if those three episodes are somehow chopped up together into one mega premiere like man of science man of faith is a three-part episode in the way that exodus was a three-part episode uh is that a stronger episode than dividing it up into man of science adrift and 
orientation? I think kind of yes, but also I think what you might lose is the the mystery behind Jack's discovery of the hatch. Uh, that's something that I think gets lost in the re-edit of putting those three episodes together. Right, and I think that, yeah, that that's something that stands so starkly on its own, especially to finish off an episode. Like, this episode finishes so nicely that... I don't know if at the end of three hours, if that packs as well of a punch as it does, because you, you want to end the episode on. Well, actually, you can, right? Because if you want to put in Exodus, because this is just such a good ending that like you, you feel like you need to end the episode on it. But if you have stuff that occurs chronologically after this, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I we, we were talking about it at the time we were talking about it, I was really high on the idea. And then like doing like the, the granular note taking process of, of rewatching Man of Science, Man of Faith and getting to that part in the ending of uh, of Jack just like being like terrified as the light comes on and the mama cast comes on. I think you lose that in combining these three episodes. And I don't want to lose that. I want I wish that a drift worked out better, uh, but yep. we could save that conversation for next week. Yeah, absolutely. But as as one third of this tri a trilogy, I think it starts off remarkably well. I think it packs an emotional punch. I think it packs a canonical punch. I think from a visual perspective, it is remarkable. My one quibble, we'll get to this in the 4.2 stuff, is, you know, I wish there could have been something that tied in more stuff with the rest of the ensemble. Uh, you know, the stuff that we got from Shannon was interesting. I, I don't know. I could take or leave Charlie balking about how there are no others. That sort of just felt like random filler. But the Jack, Locke, Kate stuff and Hurley stuff by, uh, by you know, consequence is really, really good in my opinion. All right, Mike, let's get into the others, our feedback and general information section here on Down the Hatch, curated by the great Ben behind the curtain. Uh, this is, uh, so, so Ben wanted to start us off actually with uh, how this episode really served as the backbone for one of the major hubs in the fan community of Lost, uh, certainly at the time of the airing, and that is Dark UFO, uh, the genesis of Dark UFO and the Lost spoiler community, a prolific spoiler community uh, in the Lost fandom. If you were a Lost fan uh, with access to the internet, uh, it was very likely that you were uh, at least rubbing elbows with the Lost spoiler community. I would be lying if I said I was not myself. And a few of my friends in my uh, in my in my college years uh, were were really into the dark UFO stuff. Um, but this is what Ben cobbled together. Uh, Andy Page, well known by his internet handle of dark ufo became the center of the lost spoiler community almost by accident in 2005 man of science man of faith was given a premiere at a beach party in hawaii a week before it publicly aired on abc spoilers didn't easily find their way onto the internet in 2005 but andy happened to track down a report that talked about a scottish man pressing buttons in the hatch and so he made a post claiming it as a spoiler on imdb other than andy's post no one else in the online lost community had correctly guessed what would be found in the hatch after the episode aired andy found that he had inherited an immediate reputation as a spoiler hound and so started the dark ufo blog which today is spoiler tv he had 200,000 hits in 24 hours and the dark ufo site became well known as the place to get lost spoilers as well as discuss the show generally and people's pet theories the site spoiled most of the major twists over the following few years including most controversially the season three and four finales uh that's from the ben behind the 
the curtain, who I believe was uh, on the dark UFO message boards back in the day. Ben, correct me if I am wrong. Um, I don't know, Mike, were you were you big on dark UFO or were you aware of dark UFO at all? I was aware. You know, I think the the forums I was trolling was sort of like, you know, the the copy of the copy had sort of like taken sources and intel from from dark ufo and sort of brought it onto the forum so i guess i was like second-handedly experiencing the information though i never ventured onto dark ufo itself because you know i obviously didn't want to i didn't want to spoil myself too too much just because there was so much insanity going on but i mean suffice it to say 2005 you know the internet and specifically its relation with tv was still a bit nascent and i feel like we cover survivor and obviously there's a whole history of spoiler culture with that but i feel like there have not at that point been a lot of you know things being spoiled for tv shows on the internet now it seems like with people like reality steve for example there's an entire career made, to out, be of made out of it yeah. yeah but now but it was so nouveau back in the day this guy happened to you know go from a premiere party in hawaii and sort of leak details from things and that was relatively new it seems so you know day-to-day is so normal nowadays but i think we have to credit dark ufo for them much like we credit lost with so much stuff we see in modern tv today yeah, instrumental part of the Lost fandom, though. Uh, just no no two ways about it. Um, let's keep going. Uh, let's talk about the Swan Hatch design. And Ben has pulled some relevant details from The Hatch, a Lost podcast by Sammy Roth and Rosie Murphy. Uh, they had an interview with uh, Rick Romer, uh, the, uh, the famous astrologist <laughs> uh, and travel agent Rick Romer. Uh, uh, this is an interview about Everybody Hates Hugo. And Rick Romer, who was a set designer uh, for Lost, uh, was talking about the design of the Swan Station. This is what Rick Romer said. We had very little input from ABC in season one, but after the first season, there was a lot more corporate involvement. ABC directed that doors in the hatch could not open left to right like Star Trek, only up and down. The biggest nightmare of the hatch design was what was the clock going to look like? I had a clock radio I'd given my dad sometime in the 70s. It was a flip clock, and we would we would, uh, we would end up paying a lot of money for an actual flip clock. Uh, clock uh but then they wanted it to go backwards and it was taking too long to engineer i hate to break the news to the world but that was all cgi every time that clock was seen it wound up not being a real clock at all we wasted so much time and money trying to get a real one um news to me mike i had no idea that the the clock was uh was cgi wow what a seamless transition from the cgi polar bear to some of the best cgi on lost i think is that yeah and i would recommend in terms of design stuff that again people go on onto uh the you know that that secrets from the hatch stuff because there's so much interesting stuff in there as i'm sure we're going to get into with the choices but essentially what the design of the hatch comes down to is knowing that this was built in the 70s how would things look from the rumpus room to what the computer systems would look like and when you look at it from that perspective considering how antiquated and sometimes dilapidated things look that was all incorporated into the design from the get-go and so it was the timeline of it was so essential from the beginning uh damon lindelof in that featurette said what did what what if we started with an idea that we wanted it to look like Tomorrowland? uh was the darman what was the dharma initiative's vision of the future in 1980 as opposed to what the future actually was and then they came back with a sort of neat and clean idea and we said we wanted dirty it up a little bit more it needs to be a little more industrial a little more concrete i wonder i wonder oh. how early on uh lindelof knew that they were like gonna chernobyl this thing i know that he references uh chernobyl yeah Sa- saeed references it right with the yeah concrete. he's gonna say that in episode four 
um, that the, that must that, I mean, that must have been central to the ideas like a big electromagnetic incident occurred here. Uh, something like historic and awful and nightmarish occurred here. And the concrete plays a, a huge role in it. Yeah. And let's also look. So this was based on Tomorrowland, right? Tomorrowland. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Josh. Uh, this was created in the memory of somebody. Oh, I can't remember. Some, some park maven and his ideas <laughs> that he inspired no. people with. I, I wonder who no. that might be. It's Walt's, Walt it's Disney! Walt's namesake. <laughs> Walt returned. Walt's proud grandpapa. <laughs> Walt Disney rears his mouse-laden head uh, once again. What is it, grandpapa? Um, how about this? Uh, you and I know this, I'm sure. I wonder how many people listening to uh, Down the Hatch know this, that the mural on the wall in the hatch was painted by Jack Bender, uh, the, the executive producer and uh, prolific director of Lost. Uh, Jack Bender said in this dvd featurette one afternoon i went in there and knowing that some of the story elements of where the season was going i started painting i've been painting since i was 14 i painted this painting in about four hours Ooh, there's that number and it's great because it all has to do with the mythology according to all of our internet fans it all has to do with the lost city of atlantis and the purple circle that's surrounding the number 108 it's next to the words i am sick which is an eyeball and an M and the word sick, but it's crossed out. It's wonderful to see what people have done with that whole world down there. Uh, so Jack Bender created the mural. And it sounds like he just kind of created it to troll the internet, <laughs> to troll the lost yeah. fandom. And I believe, though, canonically, it was Desmond who painted uh, it, right? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I was trying to think, wasn't it Kelvin? But Kelvin, I think, just made the Blastor map, right? Or he was finishing He was yeah. finishing the Blastor map that Rizinski had started. Um, Imagine, like, uh, Kelvin being like, all right, it's Arts and Crafts Day, yeah. Desmond. <laughs> go go work on yeah, your go mural. go touch up your mural. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense, you know, given the whole vaccine thing, the whole I am sick. And then once he finds out and live together, die alone, that that whole hazmat thing was just a big hoax that he ends up crossing that out, probably, you know, in fury or in sadness and crashing uh, flight 815 and all the 815s. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's you could say like, oh, what is this foreshadow? But like you said, it's more recursive, right? It's more so Jack Bender looking back on what the popular theories were at the time and being like, yeah, let's let's throw a bunch of crap up there that people will think validates their theories and really. It oh my god uh all right let's talk about the episode title man of science man of faith many people probably think that that's a reference to both jack and Locke, given the line to this effect in exodus but it's actually uh the intention of the writers that both halves of the title referred to jack that he is the man of science as well as the man of faith that's according to the dvd commentary on this episode uh and this is also something that Dallin servo the great Dallin servo who is a down the hatch contributor uh observed as well and wrote this in uh, this episode it's probably my favorite flashback for Jack I think the story of Jack witnessing a miracle is really beautifully told and Matthew Fox is so good in the last flashback scene I always thought that the man of science man of faith title was a reference to the battle that was about to emerge between Jack and Locke but it really is referring to the battle that's within Jack he's always been a man of science but there's a man of faith battling within him and it's not until he returns to the island in season 5 that he finally allows that man of faith inside to emerge 
Right. I think maybe if we had this big omnibus episode that you've been theorizing and we had sort of combined the flashbacks from this episode and orientation together, we could see that duality more between the two men. But like you said, I think that the flashback is speaking more towards him becoming a man of faith, which is just so starkly contrast with him being a devout man of science here and basically refusing to go down the hatch once it's figured out that you can't put people down yeah. there. Uh, this is once again from DVD commentary for season two. Uh, the story of how Henry Ian Cusick got his script uh, as Desmond. Uh, ben Martell writes, the casting of Desmond involved a substantial global search for an actor, resulting in the casting of Henry Ian Cusick. When Greg Nations went to send out his script and looked at his address, he realized that Cusick was living directly across the road from Carlton Cuse in Los Angeles. Carlton had never met him and had no idea that he lived there, and he went and delivered him his script by hand. Uh, that's very funny. Carlton Cuse just like knocks on your door. He's like, hey, you're on my show. Here's your script. Yeah, could you imagine if you opened the door and it was that showrunner of one of the most popular shows on the planet at that moment being like, oh, yeah, here's your script. And you're like, oh, no, is this not a good sign for the show that the guy's having to deliver things for us? Can't he hire an assistant to do that? Are they losing what money? What are the odds that Desmond's role gets expanded on Lost, specifically because Carlton Cuse now knows that Henry and Cusick lives across the street and it would be very awkward if it was just a done-in-one appearance? And he's like, now right. I really got to make sure Desmond's on the show for the whole thing. I live across the yeah, street. Yeah, right, they have, a, they, they, they have a block party and Desmond's like, so... What you got in mind for season three? Yeah. Huh? Like, uh, Anything interesting? I guess you're going to be in it. I guess we're going to make a really big role for you. Oh, man, it's so awkward. I, but I, Great. I like my house and I want to move. How would you, how would you like your hot dogs? <laughs> burnt. Very, very burnt. Uh, let's get into some feedback from the listeners, some more feedback. This is from Adi Sukumar, uh, who writes in and asks about how the opening scene changes the nature of the show. Uh, Addy writes, the first four minutes of this episode act as a transition point for the series. Our beliefs about everything that is important and everything that's problematic to the survivors about the island are shattered, leaving room for the mysteries that arise in the coming seasons. As soon as we see Jack and Locke looking down at us, we think back to the opening sequence just moments earlier and learn that in the hatch there are weapons, food, luxuries, medical supplies. This single sequence completely shifted what I cared about in the show. No longer was I worried about how they would survive on the island, how they would deal with medical emergencies, or how they'd protect themselves from the wild animals on the island. Everything they needed was in the hatch. Now what I cared about was understanding why? Why is there a hatch filled with supplies? Why is there a man in the hatch? Why is the man using a computer? Can he communicate with the outside world? And these questions, and many more that arose throughout the series, are what kept me invested in the show. I believe this shift in what the audience cares about makes this one of the most important scenes in Lost. Do you two feel the same? I do feel the same, is the answer that Josh Wiggler gives. I will co-sign that. I think important is the great qualifier here because we talked about many times how this serves as just a big shift not only for the season not only for the tone but also for the show in what's going to be the immediate focus we have moved away from finding enough boar to kill and satiate our tummies now it's about okay we have plenty of uh you know uh, we have plenty of uh, regular goods and services that we can partake in now we are no longer in the wild but now what's going on? It feels like a monumental shift. 
in, in every way, shape, or form. And yes, some characters are going to get brought down there piecemeal, and yes, we are going to eventually lose the hatch at the end of Season 2, but in its place, we get Otherville. We get New Otherton. We get Dharmaville, where that's also like a regular, uh, a regularly suburban community basically that has all the basic amenities you might want so it definitely serves as a market departure uh from you know a from a i guess a plot perspective in terms of pure survival instincts into something that's okay we've got our base level set up and the first floor is looking real weird to this house not what we expected let's check it uh out. matthew writes in and asks asks is the opening for season two episode one of lost the best of the series what impact did this desmond scene have on tv it reminds me of the opening for the westworld episode riddle of the sphinx uh no spoilers on westworld but that is a common comparison uh that that i've mm. certainly heard in uh including a stationary yeah. bike right i believe is a common uh yeah prop. it's it's very it's a it, they're very similar scenes um do you think that this was a, a very impactful episode as far as television goes uh do you think that this scene um you know, in the same way that, like, there's a lot of lost copycats that come out of Lost, uh, Flash Forward and V and Alcatraz and all that stuff. Um, do you think that this scene itself was influential? Maybe just in the sense of, like, without this scene, the rest of how Lost comes about maybe is, is, you know, right. totally different. And if you don't, you, if you don't have this, you don't have the way season three opens. You don't have the way season five opens where we follow Marvin Candle starting to record his video before we end up going into the big patch of electromagnetism. Then it's revealed that wait a minute, Daniel Faraday is there. So within the show, it's a game changer. I'm hard pressed to say from a TV perspective, I guess what would the adopter be? Here's a scene that seems completely out of place and random until you realize that it actually ties back to the canon in a way you wouldn't right. expect. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Yeah, I'm, I can't. I'm hard pressed to think of any ones off the top of my head that seem to be a direct one-to-one comparison. I, I implore hatchlings out there to let us know, but there's nothing that comes to mind to me outside of that aforementioned Westworld scene that really is something that I could directly relate back to this idea of the rug pull at the last minute after immersing ourselves in a completely weird environment. Uh, Stefan Johnson writes in about uh, continuing with uh, an element from that opening scene. Uh, Stefan writes, make your own kind of music is about writing your own destiny. Yet Desmond, more than any other character on the show, seems to me to not be able to escape his destiny. Uh, that's some great irony about the Mama Cass of it all as it, uh, as it pertains to Desmond. Do you agree that Desmond is somebody who is not allowed to be the, uh, the Arthur of his own fate? At least initially, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to their point. You know, make your own kind of music is basically about like, hey, you know what? dance to the beat of your own drummer like sometimes you have to go your own way make your own song and that's okay even if people don't sing with you you're creating your own tune and that's great too so it's really representing this need to be independent in life and desmond does do like independent things but they're almost to serve a purpose you know like he he enters the race around the world again to prove himself in order to, to get with penny and of course you know the way he's been living in the hatch has been this furious regiment uh, that he keeps up, even to the point of the vaccines, even when he knows that the vaccines seem to be kind of BS, he's still using them because he wants to keep up this, I guess, inherent loyalty to Dharma uh, at large. And so, right, especially in the beginning portion of when we meet Desmond, it does seem like he's not necessarily making his own kind of music to the point where he's not strumming a guitar or anything. He's putting on a record of someone else's music. All of that being said, Desmond is unstuck in time. 
You know, he's the only person that like the whatever happened happened rules don't like. I mean, I guess they do apply, but it's because he is able to interact with time in a way that nobody else is. Like he was able to like be like stationary on the freighter and still mentally go back to the past and talk to Penny and give her the information that's going to make him able to talk to her on the phone on Christmas 2004 and get her and the boat to the island to save her and the rest of the Oceanic Six. So in that sense, Desmond very much does make his own kind of music. Right. I mean, I would say definitely by the end, and we talked about this, right, that he is certainly sort of blazing his own path. But I would say that's the Desmond that we see after he turns that failsafe key, which I think is a different type of Desmond character than what we see in season two, which I think speaks towards your point as to what they were playing to do with him in season three. Maybe a bit different than the initial journey of the character, but at least what we're seeing him do initially it seems like he is working against the make your own kind of music. Uh, let's talk about uh, some aspects of the flashback. Let's talk about Jack specifically uh, and Mr. Rutherford. Uh, this is from Brendan Fitzpatrick. Realizing that Jack let Shannon's father die so he could save Sarah makes do no harm cut so much worse and deeper than it did a few weeks ago. Jack was there for the death of her father and her brother. Ouch. Jack deciding to save the pretty lady over the random man wielded next to her has never sat right with me. Tough look for our guy, Jack, as some would say, says Fitz. Uh, well, OK, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to push against the lovely Fitz here that it does not come across to me that Jack's like, oh, well, hubba hubba better go for this pretty lady. This is not Kevin, the fiance, the doctor. OK, I, I personally think that Jack sort of operated under like a first come first serve type of basis and look maybe that that's not the way to do it but considering the dire circumstances behind both of them i can forgive him for you know pulling the steering column out of somebody when you know someone else gets wheeled in and has to get taken care of that he can't exactly drop everything and move over to and i think also probably there's like some odds assessment right you know like who who has a better shot of surviving if i start getting to work uh and he probably makes that snap decision it's it's sarah's the one to to rescue yeah, I would agree. With uh, that Eric Divestein writes in this episode included a dramatic moment where Jack had to decide which patient to save. But Mr. Rutherford died like 15 seconds after that. So I'm highly skeptical that Jack could have done anything to save him anyway. Yeah, Eric, that's what I'm saying, man. That's right. Yeah, I mean, look, I would love anyone from the medical field to please write in about this and talk about how wrong we were about each and everything. Uh, but, you know, all, everything I've learned in life, I've seen on TV That's it. And from that perspective. I'm, I'm going to let Jack off the hook just a little bit here. And hopefully that means that I don't. Daniel Brennan writes, I found Jack's changing reaction to Sarah over the course of the flashback to be the most frustrating part of the episode. Jack goes from one extreme to the other. Can you guys make sense of what we are supposed to learn about Jack's character from this flashback? Um, for me, uh, Mike, I, I do think it's this idea that Jack is, even if reluctantly, a person who is able to accept miracles to some extent. Uh, it, it, it paves the way for the fact that by the end of the series, the long arc for Jack is actually basically his arc in this episode. His arc in this episode of uh, very practically working on the Sarah situation, giving up and then kind of like giving into the idea that like, there's this cosmic thing that saved her life, basically, that like against all odds, she's going to be able to walk and just to be able to have like an emotional release in the face of that is very similar to the way that Jack's whole storyline is going to wrap up by the end of the show. Daniel, I love you, but I question the use of the term one extreme to the other. 
Because it's not like he's throwing a parade in the street now being like, a miracle, a miracle, la-di-da-di-da. He has a legitimate, as you said, Josh, emotional release. I wouldn't call that an extreme. I'd call that a step. It's not like he's making a huge jump over to like, I guess I better devote myself now to the fact that miracles can happen. Hallelujah. It's him being like, wow, I was wrong. This actually can happen. And I was able to live up to my promise. And like you said, that feels like a nudge that doesn't feel like yeah. a push. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think it makes sense to me. I think that the, the the final place that he comes to at the end of the episode is earned. You're not going to find me saying basically anything that knocks this episode. I think this episode is close to perfect. Uh, it's going to get a going to get a full 4.2 for me. Just, just, just spoiler. Just spoiler UFO. Uh, Josh. All right. Some praise for Matthew Fox. This is from Sarah, not stripes. Uh, she writes in Matthew Fox's performance in the flashbacks. It's breathtaking so much so that I almost didn't even notice the wig. Almost his amazing delayed reaction after he promises to fix Sarah is genuinely one of my favorite acting moments in the entire series with a strong assist from the nurse. The way he manages to pull off that really tricky line. I'm intense. Like he was trying to tell a joke that fell flat because it's a because it's really a pretty raw truth is gorgeous and of course the last scene with julie bowen is just stunning work from both of them but it's particularly moving to see jack feel so strongly for a patient after his earlier coldness can't say enough good things about his performance in this episode uh fully agreed with sarah uh and i know we 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 definitely bag on on jack from time to time because he's he's an easy target because he takes himself so seriously i think matthew fox probably takes himself very seriously as well um, but he has reason to, uh, certainly to an extent anyway. He is a very gifted actor. Uh, and and I, I hope that I say that often enough. Uh, but I, I do agree with Sarah here um, that the performance for Matthew Fox in this episode, to me, is really lights out. I, I think that some of the some of the choices he makes in this episode, like the when he you know, when he's poking and prodding to see if Sarah's regained feeling. And there's that one of those final moments there, like the camera's just lingering on him. You're not seeing Sarah when she says, yeah, she feels it. And his face is just like really held together then she says she could feel it and he just like completely collapses in tears uh brilliant beautiful wonderful great and i don't even mind the weight yeah. that much and then cu- and then couple that with the fact that like five minutes beforehand he had this like hardened yet terror-struck look on his face as he was making his way through the hatch this is a full emotional palette that we experienced from jack this episode and i think matthew fox really rises to the task i wonder if this also reflects how the writers were sort of, you know, approaching it as well. You can imagine that if they know what their characters and their actors are capable of, now they might push them in in other directions. And maybe if someone had, maybe if Michael Keaton had played Jack and he didn't die in the pilot, I don't know if they, maybe they wouldn't have given him this type of stuff. I I can imagine that they had a certain trust in Matthew Fox at this point that they say, okay, we're going to write you a flashback thing that brings you from like complete dunderhead giving horrible bedside manner to completely emotionally falling apart in front of your future wife. And he's able to pull it off. Uh, you already mentioned Jim Fells, uh, the great Jim Fells, who does the wonderful music analysis uh, of each episode of Lost. Um, anything, any other takeaways from from Jim's work this week that you want to mention on the podcast? Lots of stuff. So the first part of this episode introduces a motif uh, that he calls fear and dread, which essentially always comes out when there's like a slightly unnerving presence going on. Like it happens in maternity leave when Lippy helps Claire access her memories. Uh, it happens in the beginning of the end when Sawyer ends up uh, going off with with Locke's party. It happens in Dead is Dead when Ben wakes up to see, uh, you know, or when Ben wakes up to see Locke standing in front of him. There is a swan motif that we're going to hear a lot over the course of this season that obviously focuses around the hatch. Uh, there is it's also interesting. The music that plays when Jack goes down into the hatch is actually the same music that plays 
when Sawyer got tortured by huh, Saeed okay. back in Confidence Man. To me, that represents Jack doing things he doesn't want to do, like going against his own gut. Because let's remember in Confidence Man, you know, this is something that he he stops, you know, partially part of the way through because he he realizes that, it you know, it was a morally abhorrent thing to do, at least from his perspective here. He didn't want to go down the hatch. Now he's doing it to save Kate, assumingly. And so maybe that sort of represents Jack having to put his heart above his head, maybe. And he also talks about the, the Walt whisper scene introduces a bit of a Walt theme, which is a really interesting idea where they sort of replace environmental ideas like the wind with percussive elements like for example in the scene that we were listening to in sound number two uses a wind chime instead of the wind for example so i think anytime we're going to see walt uh in the next couple of instances it's going to make use of those percussive instruments in lieu of more natural elements maybe speaking towards the fact that walt is like maybe might be leaving the island is sort of disconnected from everyone else uh, i don't know i don't know exactly what it represents but i think it's a cool idea it's a jam-packed video from mr awesome as always we will link to it in our show notes let's get into mvps and lvps or 23 points section first we've got a little bit of feedback from bill hall uh stemming from the feedback show that we did last week this was great from bill bill said the mvp lvp section of each podcast is always some light fun but i never could have imagined the dividends it would pay on a whole season feedback roundup. The hot zone is the negative twos to the negative ones, where we have a lot of random and hilarious entries. Curating our own insanity is where it's at. It's not a flaw. It's a feature. We all know who's the worst, but who just kind of sucks? Lots of people and things. Hawaiian shirt, Alice and Janney, the blowfish. Uh, more delightful nonsense, please, requests Bill. Uh, Oh, well, hopefully Bill liked the first 20 minutes yeah, of this Bill, podcast. Bill, then. don't worry. We are going to be continuing to hand out our 23 points each week as we give out two MVP points. One of us and the other gives out three. And then one gives out two LVP points and the other gives out three LVP points. Uh, we are not going to uh, list off the season one MVP and LVPs anymore. We're just going to keep track of season two. And then we'll do the cumulative roundup when we get to the end of the season in our season two feedback show. So everybody, like, in a sense, gets to Bula Rasa uh, just to, to queer the slate so it's a little easier to track for season two so that we can be a little bit more cleaner about who's the season two MVP and who's the season two LVP. But we'll add those totals to the to the running total that we have at the end of the season as well so we can see where everyone is standing as we move forward through lost uh, another quick note uh we had some people who were asking why was there no mention of sawyer or even ethan uh as we were going through the mvps and lvps during our feedback show well that's because even though sawyer spent the entire season basically in the red he actually zeroed out by the end of season one yeah th thanks exodus part one uh, so he's <laughs> and, and also saving he the runner zeroed out so he's currently just chilling he doesn't uh you know he's got a bullet in his shoulder but at least he isn't in the in the negatives yeah, zero is not the number of bullets. Yeah, in him I think right that now. he's probably going to leave adrift in the positives. Uh, you know, he's kind of an a hole, but he does dig a bullet out of his shoulder, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's, it's more admirable than you know his other qualities. So I can't begrudge him too much. Certainly, we'll give him an LVP for having to, to yeah, do that. Yeah. On so himself. Ethan also gets uh, is, is also zeroed out by the end of the MVP LVPs. Uh, all right, so let's get into the MVPs LVPs of Man of Science. Man of Faith, I've got the first one to award. I shall award it to the titular Man of Science and Faith, Jack Shepard, uh, for performing miraculous surgery on Sarah. Uh, I am going to give a point to Desmond, 
because of the uplifting speech that he gives to Jack that is able to get him at least to believe partially that miracles may happen in the past and also contributing to one of the coolest opening sequences in TV history. No surprise, given my track record, given an MVP point to Kate Austin. Uh, she's She's got the courage to go out there and join Locke and go down the hatch, and she's the first one down the hatch. So so points for being the first one on the moon uh, and points also for being like, Jack, you stay back here with the cave people. Somebody's got to keep an eye on John Locke and it's going to be me. Yeah, she really steps up between like her being the Locke whisperer, her, her really trying to serve as the mediator between these two guys that are growing ever more apart. You know, I think her trying to play UN, which is you know interesting from a character perspective, uh, just from Kate in general, is going to be a very interesting role for Kate moving forward and for now it earns her an mvp point and assumingly more down the line i'm gonna give a point to sarah i've lauded so much praise onto julie bowen over the course of this episode and i really want to give her you know we couldn't give her any for do no harm just because there was so much great stuff going on there from an ensemble perspective so i'm gonna take advantage uh especially before sarah and jack sort of go their separate ways i really want to acknowledge what a great performance sort of in a similar vein because we're not going to have a lot of time uh with this character anymore moving forward and actually for similar reasons to why i gave kate an mvp point i'm gonna give one to shannon uh i think shannon's choice to go after vincent in the face of everything that's going on uh is is a powerful one especially after she's just like a couple of days having lost boone she's really pulled herself together this the same day that she freaked out about not being able to lug the luggage around anymore like she's really come a long way in the span of what like eight hours nine hours at this point very impressive showing from shannon she really holds it down in the face of uh, backwards talking ghost walt when she's talking to everybody back at the caves she's like i swear to god i saw a ghost walt it was freaking weird uh but she doesn't like back down from her truth uh and she's gonna die soon uh and currently shannon's not doing so well uh in the overall rankings in the <laughs> I love this idea of MVP hospice of like, well, they're on their way out. So you might as well like try to bu- make their journey as comfortable you know, as possible. I'm, I'm marking, I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting the overalls. We won't go through each and every single one every single week, but she was the co-LVP of the whole season one alongside Anthony Cooper uh, with negative four. So she's a plus one for season two so far and a negative three overall now uh, is where we are currently standing with Shannon Rutherford. All right, LVPs, I'm giving not one, but two of my three points to Kevin. <laughs> yeah, the douchey fiance. Well, we, did, we didn't even like mention the fact that in that in the second to last clip, the fact that apparently Kevin like didn't show up to greet his fiance after her, you know, maybe life altering surgery. Like, I would not be surprised, honestly, Josh, if he got the hell out of Dodge once he found out that he may have to carry yeah. her to the pee pee potty place uh, in his future, that he just like completely ghosted her and left. And then we she never saw. him. Yeah. Throw a third one on to fiance douche, who's uh, the, the current title holder of LVP this season uh, with negative three. Uh, which just to just to set that he joins a, a group that includes currently Shannon in the overalls with 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 uh, negative three. Christian Shepard also has a negative three. Uh, Thomas uh, Claire's baby daddy has has negative three. And Randy Nations also has negative three. Mm. Uh, we might, we'll, give, we'll be getting some more Randy time soon. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about I think maybe if we had opened up more MVP points, I might have given a point to Christian 
for his uh, his wise words to Jack, but there were only so much to get yeah, to I go think around. That's fine. You know, there there'll be other shots for Christian. Uh, we'll see where he goes. I guess uh, so. I'm I'm giving one to to Kevin the fiance as well. Uh, and you know, I've I've broken the rule before, but I'm not going to break it this week. Shannon's dad dies. He's he was no. You you, you got to keep to your rules at least yeah. initially, right before we break them. Uh, and I'm going to give my final one. You know what? Let's let's keep this downward trending going for John Locke as he goes down the wow. hatch. Uh, j- well, just because of like him disobeying Jack and, you know, b- visually ruining his sp- uplifting speech by going out there by maybe sending Kate down to her doom initially just for his overall attitude uh you know I, I there will be a bounce back for john Locke. do not worry Locke fans but i do not feel like this episode is a good john Locke him. begins season two in the red uh these are the season two rankings as they currently stand kate with one jack with one shannon with one desmond with one sarah with one john Locke negative one in the overalls he's currently at plus one that's it steep wow steep fall from grace for john Locke. uh mr rutherford gets a negative one and fiance douche negative three uh kate with that plus one right now is tied with saeed for series mvp uh that is that is where we are at and jack is now tied in second place with hurley's seven points apiece uh i'll I'll try and and update those as we move along we also have the 4.2 stars the episode rankings tabula rasa once again cleaning the slate we are only going to be ranking season two episodes we are only going to be giving you those episode rankings we have locked in the scores for season one the floor is yours for ranking season two of lost and if you do not know how that works because you are you know new to the podcast and you've made it this far and you're interested what we're doing is we're ranking every single episode of lost on a scale of zero to 4.2 i give a score Mike gives a score. The audience writes in to down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com and emails their scores as well. We average the audience score for a third data point. We average my score, Bloom's score, and the audience score for a cumulative total score. And that is how we rank the episodes of Lost. And Mike uh, should be no surprise that currently Man of Science, Man of Faith is the best episode of season two of Lost. <laughs> Yes, one out of one, man of science, man of faith. And Josh, you uh, outlined it before. You spoiled your own ranking. Iconic episode. Like the the, the comeback, you know, from what's in the hatch. Oh, my God, what's in the hatch? The answer is so satisfying. It's so mythologically significant. I know that there's, you know, some griping about, well, the Walt thing never really amounts to anything. I don't really care. It's so scary. It's so weird. It's so strange. It's so memorable to me. Uh, A lot of this is maybe nostalgia glasses. But, hey, isn't the whole podcast? Uh, So so what are you going to do? This is a 4.2 for me for sure. Well, call me Kate to your lock because I'm coming with you. Uh, I'm a 4.2 as well. I didn't, it's my, my opinion has risen. I think I initially gave it like a 3.9 to 4 after I first saw it as I was really looking at things thematically and especially from a, from an acting and a cinematography perspective that made it climb the ranks. And like you said, I mean, I was looking at the other episodes that compared to, to 4.2s and there is really little to quibble with. In my opinion, I wish we could have spent more time with the other characters uh, that we'll certainly get a lot of them in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, the Walt stuff doesn't really go anywhere. But if I'm looking at like an episode of Lost, an episode of television, there is so much good going on here. And I'm going to cherish this. Let me throw out another uh, absolute question here for you, Josh. Is this 
the best episode of season two. Oh, is Man of Science, Man of Faith the best episode of season two? So I have to do the quick run through of everything that's in season two. I mean, I think that question is going to be put to the test with orientation uh, because that's mm. going to have the Dharma video, which is so iconic. Uh, you know, the first time we're going to see one of those. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, but then going beyond that, I think it's it's certainly the best episode other than maybe orientation, which is in contention with it for a while. Um no, I think maybe, uh, well, I, I was going to say Two for the Road, uh, but I, I feel like two for, you, two for the Road is a great episode and an iconic ending. Yeah. I just wonder if you're looking at the entire package, like, it's this is really, this is going to be a high watermark. Yeah, I, I think that the finale is competitive with it, um, but I, I wouldn't be mad at the suggestion that this is the best episode of season two. Yeah, which, I mean, it, it's it's that's why I also wanted to give it a 4.2, again, as sort of like something to look back upon when maybe we're living in the doldrums. Maybe next week we'll maybe be further in the doldrums uh, and we can look back and like, man, man of science, man of faith is great. Uh, and I'm so happy with how this started out. I'm so happy to just look at season two again. I talked about this in the feedback show that I am so interested in the choices that they made this season, even more so with the intel that we sort of stumbled upon in that featurette, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode. And Josh, we are off to a blazing start, and I have a Shrek soundboard queued up for the veritable future. Oh, good, 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 good. Uh, Just going back and looking at my Hollywood Reporter rankings of every episode of Lost, I have orientation ahead of Man of Science, uh, Man of of Mm. Faith, and I believe that I also have let me just double check yeah i have the finale is ahead of it as well but i think i I do think it's unfair with the finales you know the finales are such blockbuster events yeah uh yeah and they're 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 able to take their time sort of stretch out and put all this stuff over two to three hours uh the audience rated man of science man of faith uh lower than us uh considerably at this point 3.9 is the audience average yeah I've seen sort of a range where I think some people have sort of been up there with us in the high fours, if not a 4.2. I've seen some people put it in like the low threes as well. I haven't seen anybody put it in the two range, but it feels like this has a bit of a uh, a bit of a range to it. I wonder if that's also just because of the the, the weird swings they take. And maybe this is going to be emblematic of season two as well with the attempts. That uh, and so that all with the 3.9 and the two 4.2s, we are looking at 4.09 for Man of Science, Man of Faith. That is the score to beat at the moment. Next week, Mike. Uh, well, next week, first of all, before we get to our next episode recap, you'll you, dear listener, We'll, we'll have something to listen to from us in the Down the Hatch world. Uh, no further spoilers other than Mike and I are very excited about it. Uh, so we'll be mm-hmm. back sooner than your normal Friday scheduled programming. I would expect us back sometime early next week uh, with another podcast for you. But after that, uh, and I think maybe this is like part of the reason we're, we're like giving you giving you a treat, throwing you a, throwing you a lifeline here because we're going to be talking about a drift episode two of season two which mike did you say this is your least favorite episode of lost it's up I mean, there it's, it's up I, there right yeah it's definitely up there i remember when we did our big round robin episode ranking i think this was the first episode that i ranked at the bottom just because especially we talked about this with whatever the case may be in terms of momentum when you have exodus and you have man of science man of faith i do feel like it unfortunately does not benefit from where it ends up Uh, especially when you have this big question of like what happened to the people on the raft 
I don't think the answer would be let's have Sawyer and Michael sitting on Driftwood for a good portion of time. I think it's a bit of a disappointing follow-up. We do get some stuff back in the hatch, but as we said, we're going to start with the Rashomon of it all. I'm hoping to be, uh, you know, I- I'm hoping to be surprised positively by it, but uh, I'm ex- I'm prepared for the worst. I should. I say. have it as uh, in my THR rankings. I have it as the third worst episode of Lost. Uh, that feels extreme right now because I did recently rewatch Adrift and and I wasn't as bothered by it uh, on on this recent rewatch. Yeah, how was how was the uh, the the brightness on your your yeah, viewing thing I mean, of it choice? It was fine. It was fine. Fu- because I have I have very much Game of Thrones last season uh, flashbacks sure, sure, when sure. I was watching this and I had and had no idea what was <laughs> sure, going sure, on. Sure, sure, sure. No, that makes sense to me. Um, but I also was watching it all in quick succession. I think when you're separating it out and like you know we now have to talk about a drift on its own week uh, and then we get back in orientation. I think that the events of the beginning of the season it does just feel like it takes a while. Uh, and I think that that is probably my biggest knock against a drift. But I think that we're still going to have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. It's down the hatch. We're always having a good time yeah and and listen this is a michael flashback which considering my new position as a daddy should be very interesting i'm already prepared the tissue box for the scene where michael says goodbye to baby walt because that is going to break my heart because it's the return of Susan, oh she's Josh, back you know friend means it's gonna be a grand, it's episode. Be a grand episode so that's gonna drop on february 7th get your feedback into us by the morning of february 4th uh feedback and comments we're gonna want all of that you can send that to us on twitter at post show recaps at round howard at a mike bloom type and you can also email us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. I'll also plug my Instagram if you want cat videos of the new cats. Yeah. Because uh, I'm not going to bombard you with the cat stuff on Twitter, but I am going to bombard you with my cute, cute, cute kitty cats on the Instagram where I am also at Round Howard. So if you want cute cat videos, I got them. I got them. They're ready for you. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app of choice. Postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch for our Apple feed. Ratings and reviews. So appreciated. Mike Bloom, you've got Star Trek Picard going on. Uh, great premiere episode from Star Trek Picard. Really excited. Uh, are you and Jess enjoying yourselves? We had a great time. I, I really enjoyed Star Trek Picard premiere as well. I thought it did a great job of straddling both the past and the future uh, and filling in a lot of stuff with the timeline as well. So Jess and I had a great time breaking that down. Of course, we'll be back every week posting over the weekends on post show recaps, talking about the most recent episode of Picard, which drops on Thursdays. I'm also from a writing perspective, covering Star Trek Picard for comic book resources at CBR.com slash one of of my old, uh, my old stomping grounds. Exactly. I've taken over your duty at the hatch and I've been pressing many buttons. I usually come out with a weekly recap of the morning that the episode drops. I'm also coming out with various interviews. I'm talking with, uh, for example, I'm interviewing the director, Hanalee Culpepper, from episode two that should be going up. Any by the time relation this podcast to Brad posts. and Monica? Unfortunately, though, she was directing for Hanalee. I made sure that she she said that uh, during the course of our interview. So be sure to check all that out. Also, from a survivor perspective, uh, I've been doing week daily winner profiles in anticipation for the new season if you're into uh simulated seasons which josh and i did once upon a time with the lost characters with rob sasternino rob sasternino and i did a near four hour podcast that was a crazy amount of fun even crazier than the twist from the opening sequence from lost season two if you'll be believed so be sure to check all that out but i i 
I talk about all this on my Twitter at a Mike Bloom type. It might be easier to just follow me there and wait for the random musings to get posted out into the internet. All right. So that's what's going on in Mike Bloom's neck of the woods. And in our neck of the woods here, we will be back with two down the hatches next week. Uh, I think you're going to like it. I hope. I hope. I hope. I mean, we don't know. We have no idea. But we're, we're pretty excited about what we may have in store. Uh, so keep an ear out for that. And for now, maybe keep an ear on uh, Let's Play That Alex G. Diddy one more time to play us off the show. All right, get out of here. Oh, no, sorry. That was Shrekman. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, Shrekman, do not be so mean. Alex G., please take it away. We crashed on this island And found a big hatch in the ground Get chased by polar bears And a big black smoke And there's others here too So we're going down the hatch With and Josh Wiggler Lost down the hatch with Josh and Mike. Down the hatch with and Josh Wiggler Even if nobody else comes along Bye-bye!